Hachette Audio presents The Steel Kiss, written by Jeffrey Deaver, read by Eduardo Ballerini. To Will and Tina Anderson and the boys. The enemy is within the gates. It is with our own luxury, our own folly, our own criminality that we have to contend. Cicero. Tuesday. One. Blunt Force. Chapter One. Sometimes you catch a break. Amelia Sachs had been driving her arterial blood-red Ford Torino along a commercial stretch of Brooklyn's Henry Street, more or less minding pedestrians in traffic, when she spotted the suspect. What are the odds? She was helped by the fact that unsub-40 was unusual in appearance. Tall and quite thin, he'd stood out in the crowd. Still, that alone would hardly get you noticed in the throng here. But on the night he'd beaten his victim to death two weeks before, a witness reported that he'd been wearing a pale green checked sport coat and Braves baseball cap. Sachs had done the requisite, if hopeless, posting of this info on the wire and moved on to other aspects of the investigation. And on to other investigations. Major cases detectives have plenty to look after. But an hour ago, a patrolman from the 84th Precinct walking a beat near the Brooklyn Heights promenade, had spotted a possible and called Sachs, the lead gold shield on the case. The murder had been late at night in a deserted construction site, and the perp apparently hadn't known he'd been witnessed in the outfit, so he must have felt safe donning the garb again. The patrol officer had lost him in the crowds, but she'd sped in the direction anyway, calling in backup, even if this part of the city was an urban sprawl populated by 10,000 camouflaging souls. The odds that she'd find Mr. Forty were, she told herself wryly, non-existent at best. But damn, there he was, walking in a long lope, tall, skinny, green jacket, cap and all, though from behind she couldn't tell what team was being championed on the headgear. She skidded the 60s muscle car to a stop in a bus zone, tossed the NYPD official business placard onto the dash, and eased out of the car minding the suicidal bicyclist who came within inches of collision. He glanced back, not in recrimination, but, she supposed, to get a better look at the tall, red-headed former fashion model, focus in her eyes and a weapon on her black-jeaned hip. Onto the sidewalk, following a killer. This was her first look at the prey. The gangly man moved in lengthy strides, feet long but narrow, in running shoes, she noted, good for sprinting over the damp April concrete, much better than her leather-soled boots. Part of her wished he was more wary, so he would look around and she could get a glimpse of his face. That was still an unknown. But no, he just plodded along in that weird gait, his long arms at his sides, backpack slung via one strap over his sloping shoulder. She wondered if the murder weapon was inside. The ball-peen hammer, with its rounded end, meant for smoothing edges of metal and tapping rivets flat. That was the side he'd used for the murder, not the claw on the opposite end. The conclusion as to what had caved in Todd Williams's skull had come from a database that Lincoln Rhyme had created for the NYPD and the medical examiner's office, the folder title, Weapon Impact on Human Bodies, Section 3, Blunt Force Trauma. It was Rhyme's database, but Sachs had been forced to do the analysis herself.
without rhyme. A thud in her gut at this thought forced herself to move past it, picturing the wounds again. Horrific, what the 29-year-old Manhattanite had suffered, beaten to death and robbed as he approached an after-hours club named so very meta, 40 degrees north, a reference Sachs had learned to the latitude of the East Village where it was located. Now unsub-40, the club was the source of the nick, was crossing the street with the light. What an odd build, well over six feet, yet he couldn't have weighed more than 140 or 150. Sachs saw his destination and alerted dispatch to tell her backup that the suspect was now entering a five-story shopping center on Henry. She plunged in after him. With his shadow behind at a discreet distance, Mr. Forty moved through the crowds of shoppers. People were always in a state of motion, like humming atoms in this city. Droves of people, all ages, sexes, colors, sizes. New York kept its own clock, and though it was after lunch hour, business people who should have been in the office and students in school were here, spending money, eating, milling, browsing, texting, and talking, and complicating Amelia Sachs's takedown plans considerably. Forty headed up to the second floor. He continued walking purposefully through the brightly lit mall, which could have been in Paramus, Austin, or Portland. It was that generic. The smells were of cooking oil and onions from the food court, and perfume from the counters near the open entranceways of the anchor stores. She wondered for a moment what Forty was doing here. What did he want to buy? Maybe shopping wasn't his plan at the moment, just sustenance. He walked into a Starbucks. Sachs eased behind a pillar near the escalator, about 20 feet from the open entryway to the coffee franchise, careful to remain out of sight. She needed to make sure he didn't suspect there were eyes on him. He wasn't presenting as if carrying. There's a way people tend to walk when they have a gun in their waistband or pocket, as any street cop knows, a wariness, a stiffer gait. But that hardly meant he was pistol-free. And if he tipped to her and started shooting, carnage. Glancing inside the shop quickly, she saw him reach down to the food section and pick up two sandwiches, then apparently order a drink, or possibly two. He paid and stepped out of sight, waiting for his cappuccino or mocha, something fancy. A filtered coffee would have been handed over right away. Would he eat in or leave? Two sandwiches waiting for someone? Or one for now and one for later? Sachs debated. Where was the best place to take him? Would it be better outside on the street, in the shop, or in the mall itself? Yes, the center and the Starbucks were crowded, but the street more so. No arrest solution was great. A few minutes later, he was still inside. His drink must have been ready by now, and he'd made no effort to leave. He was having a late lunch, she supposed. But was he meeting someone? making a complicated takedown even more so. She got a call. Amelia, Buddy Everett. Hey, she said softly to the patrolman out of the 84. They knew each other well. We're outside, me and Dodd, another car with three. He's in Starbucks, second floor. It was then that she saw a delivery man wheel by with some cartons emblazoned with the Starbucks logo, the mermaid, which meant there was no back entrance to the shop. Forty was trapped in a cul-de-sac. Yes, there were people inside, potential bystanders, 
but fewer than in the mall or on the street. She said to Everett, I want to take him here. Inside, Amelia? Sure. A pause. That's best. He's not getting away, Sax thought. Yes. Get up here, stat. We're moving. A fast glance inside, then back to cover. She still couldn't see him. He must be sitting in the rear of the place. She eased to the right and then moved closer to the open archway of the coffee shop. If she couldn't see him, he couldn't see her. She and the team would flank. Just then, Sachs gasped at the abrupt, piercing scream close behind her. A horrid wail of a person in pain. So raw, so high, she couldn't tell male or female. The sound came from the top of the up escalator, connecting the floor below with this one. Oh, Jesus. The top panel of the device, which riders stepped onto from the moving stairs, had popped open, and a passenger had fallen into the moving works. Help me! No! Please, please, please! A man's voice. Then the words coalesced into a scream once more. Customers and employees gasped and cried out. Those on the steps of the malfunctioning unit, which were still moving up, leapt off or charged backward. The riders on the adjoining escalator going down jumped too, maybe thinking it was about to engulf them as well. Several landed in a heap on the floor. Sachs glanced toward the coffee shop. No sign of Forty. Had he seen her badge? On her belt? Or weapon when he, like everyone else, turned to stare? She called Everett and told him about the accident and to call it in to dispatch. Then to cover the exits. Unsub 40 might have seen her and now be escaping. She sprinted to the escalator, noting somebody had pressed the emergency button. The stairs slowed and then halted. Make it stop! Make it stop! More screams from the person trapped inside. Sachs stepped into the upper part of the platform and looked into the gaping hole. A middle-aged man, around 45 or 50, was trapped in the gears of the motor, which was mounted to the floor about eight feet below the aluminum panel that had popped open. The motor continued to turn, despite someone's hitting the emergency switch. She supposed that doing so merely disengaged a clutch to the moving stairs. The poor man was caught at the waist. He was on his side, flailing at the mechanism. The gears had dug deep into his body. Blood had soaked his clothing and was flowing onto the floor of the escalator pit. He wore a white shirt with a name badge on it, an employee of one of the stores, probably. Sachs looked at the crowd. There were employees here, a few security people, but no one was doing anything to help. Stricken faces. Some were calling 911, it seemed, but most were taking cell phone pics and video. She called down to him. We've got rescue on the way. I'm NYPD. I'm coming down there. God, it hurts! More screaming. She felt the vibration in her chest. That bleeding had to stop, she assessed. And you're the only one who's going to do it. So move! She muscled the hinge panel farther open. Amelia Sachs wore little jewelry. But she slipped her one accessory, a ring with a blue stone, from her finger, afraid it would catch her hand in the gears. Though his body was jamming one set of them, a second, operating the down escalator, turned away. Ignoring her claustrophobia, but barely, Sachs started into the narrow pit. There was a ladder for workers to use, but it consisted of narrow metal bars which were slick with the man's blood. 
Apparently, he'd been slashed when he first tumbled inside by the sharp edge of the access panel. She gripped the hand and footholds of the ladder hard. If she'd fallen, she'd land on top of the man, and directly beside him, a second set of grinding gears. Once, her feet went out from under her, and her arm muscles cramped to keep her from falling. A booted foot brushed the working gears, which dug a trough in the heel and tugged at her jean cuff. She yanked her leg away then down to the floor. Hold on, hold on, saying or thinking this to both him and herself. The poor man's screams weren't diminishing. His ashen face was a knot, the skin shiny with sweat. Please, oh God, oh God. She jockeyed carefully around the second set of gears, slipping twice on the blood. Once his leg lashed out involuntarily, caught her solidly on the hip, and she fell forward toward the revolving teeth. She managed to stop herself just before her face brushed the metal. Slipped again, caught herself. I'm a police officer, she repeated. Medics will be here any minute. It's bad, it's bad, it hurts so much, oh, so much. Lifting her head, she shouted, Somebody from maintenance, somebody from management, shut this damn thing off. Not the stairs, the motor, cut the power. Where the hell's the fire department? Sachs surveyed the injury. She had no idea what to do. She pulled her jacket off and pressed it against the shredded flesh of his belly and groin. It did little to stanch the blood. Ah, 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 he whimpered. Looking for wires to cut, she carried her very illegal but very sharp switchblade knife in her back pocket. But there were no visible cables. How can you make a machine like this and not have an off switch? Jesus, furious at the incompetence. My wife, the man whispered. Shh. Sack soothed. It'll be all right. Though she knew it wouldn't be all right. His body was a bloody mess. Even if he survived, he'd never be the same. My wife, she's... Will you go see her? My son, tell them I love them. You're going to tell them that yourself, Greg, reading the name badge. You're a cop, gasping. That's right, and there'll be medics here and... Give me your gun. Give you more screaming. Tears down his face. Please, give me your gun. How do I shoot it? Tell me. I can't do that, Greg, she whispered. She put her hand on his arm. With her other palm, she wiped the pouring sweat from his face. It hurts so much, I can't take it. A scream louder than the others. I want it to be over with. She had never seen such a hopeless look in anyone's eyes. Please, for Christ's sake, your gun. Amelia Sachs hesitated then reached down and drew her Glock from her belt. A cop. Not good, not good. That tall woman, black jeans, pretty face, and all the red hair. A cop. I've left her behind at the escalator, and I'm moving through the crowds at the mall. She didn't know I'd seen her, I think, but I had. Oh, yeah. Seen her nice and clear. The scream of the man disappearing into the jaws of that machine had prodded everybody to look toward the sound. Not her, though. She was turning to look for me in the friendly Starbucks. I saw the gun on her hip, the badge on her hip. Not private, not rental, a real cop. A Blue Bloods cop. She, well, what was that? A gunshot. I'm not much on firearms, but I've shot a pistol some. No doubt that was a handgun. Puzzling. 
Yeah, yeah, something's weird. Was the police girl? Red, I'm calling her after the hair. Planning to arrest somebody else? Hard to say. She could be after me for lots of the mischief I've been up to. Possibly the bodies I left in that sludgy pond near Newark some time ago. Weighted down with barbells, like the sort pudgy people buy. Used six and a half times and never again. No word in the press about that incident, but well, it was New Jersey. Body land, that place is. Another corpse? Not worth reporting. The Mets won by seven. So... Or she might be hunting for me for the run-in not long after that on a dim street in Manhattan. Swish goes the throat. Or maybe that construction site behind Club 40 Degrees, where I left such a pretty package of, once again, snapped head bone. Did somebody recognize me at one of those places, cutting or cracking? Could be. I'm, well, distinctive looking, height and weight. I just assume it's me she wants. Better safe. I need to get away. And that means keeping my head down. That means slouching. It's easier to shrink three inches than grow. But the shot, what was that about? Was she after someone even more dangerous than me? I'll check the news later. People are everywhere now, moving fast. Most are not looking at tall me, skinny me, me of the long feet and fingers. They just want out, fleeing the screams and gunshots. Stores are emptying, food court emptying, afraid of terrorists, afraid of crazy men dressed in camo, stabbing, slashing, shooting up the world in anger, or thanks to loose-wired brains. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, militias, everyone's on edge. I'm turning here, slipping through socks and underwear, men's. Henry Street, exit fours right ahead of me. Should I get out that way? Better pause. I take in a deep breath. Let's not go too fast here. First, I should lose the green jacket and cap, buy something new. I duck into a cheap store to pay cash for some China-made Italian blue blazer. 35 long, which is lucky. That size is hard to find. Hipster fedora hat. A Middle Eastern kid rings the sale up while texting. Rude. My desire is to crack a bone in his head. At least he's not looking at me. That's good. Put the old jacket in my backpack, the green plaid one. The jacket's from my brother, so I'm not throwing it out. The sports cap goes inside, too. The Chinese-Italian hipster leaves the store and goes back into the mall. So, which way to escape? Henry Street? No, not smart. There'll be plenty of cops outside. I'm looking around. Everywhere, everywhere. Ah, service door. There'll be a loading dock, I'm sure. I push through the doorway like I belong here. Knuckles, not palm. Prince, of course. Past a sign saying employees only. Except not now. Thinking, what lucky timing, the escalator. Red next to it when the screams began. Lucky me. Head down, I keep walking steadily. Nobody stops me in the corridor. Ah, here's a cotton jacket on a peg. I unpin the employee name badge and repin the shiny rectangle on my chest. I'm now courteous team member Mario. I don't look much like a Mario, but it'll have to do. Just now two workers, young men, one brown, one white, come through a door ahead of me. I nod at them, they nod back. Hope one isn't Mario, or his best friend. If so, I'll have to reach into my backpack. And we know what that means. Cracking bones from on high. 
I pass them, good or not good. A voice shoots my way. Yo! Yeah? I ask, hand near the hammer. What's going on out there? Robbery, I think. That jewelry store, maybe. Idiots never had security there. I could have told him. His co-worker. Only had cheap crap. Zircon, shit like that. Who'd get his ass shot for a Zircon? I see a sign for deliveries and dutifully follow the arrow. I hear voices ahead. Stop and look around the corner. One little black guard, skinny as me, a twig is all, on his radio. I could break him easily with a hammer. Make his face crack into ten pieces. And then... Oh, no. Why is life such a chore? Two others show up, one white, one black, both twice my weight. I duck back, and then things get worse. Behind me, other end of the corridor, I've just come down. I hear more voices. Maybe it's Red and some others making you sweep this way. And the only exit ahead of me has three rental cops who live for the day they too have a chance to break bones, or tase, or spray. Me, in the middle, and nowhere to go. Chapter Two Where? Still searching, Amelia, Buddy Everett, the patrolman from the 84, told her. Six teams, exits all covered, us are private security. He's got to be here somewhere. Wiping away the blood on her boot with a Starbucks napkin, or trying to, futilely. Her jacket and a trash bag she'd gotten from the coffee shop, too, might not be irreparably ruined, but she wasn't inclined to wear a garment that had been saturated with blood. The young patrolman noted the stains on her hands, his eyes troubled. Cops are, of course, human, too. Immunity comes eventually, but later to some than others, and Buddy Everett was still young. Through red-framed glasses, he looked at the open access panel. And he, he didn't make it. A nod, eyes now on the floor, Sax's bloody boot prints leading away from the escalator. No idea which direction he went, he asked. None, she sighed. Only a few minutes had elapsed between the time that Unsub-40 might have seen her and fled and the deployment of the backup officers. But that seemed to be enough to turn him invisible. All right, I'll be searching with you. They'll need help in the basement. It's a warren down there. Sure, but get bodies canvassing in the street, too. If he saw me, he had a window to get the hell out of Dodge ASAP. Sure, Amelia. The youthful officer with the glasses the shade of cooling blood nodded and headed off. Detective? A man's voice from behind her. She turned to a compact Latino of about 50 in a striped navy blue suit and yellow shirt. His tie was spotless white. Don't see that combo often. She nodded. Captain Madino. She shook his hand. He was surveying her with dark eyes, lids low, seductive but not sexual, captivating in the way powerful men, some women too, were. Medino would be from the 84th Precinct and would have nothing to do with the Unsub-40 case, which was on the major cases roster. He was here because of the accident, though the police would probably step out pretty soon, unless there was a finding that there had been criminal negligence in the maintenance of the escalator, which rarely happened. But it still would be Medino's boys and girls who ran the scene. What happened? He asked her. Fire department could tell you better than I could. I was moving on a homicide suspect. All I know is the escalator malfunctioned somehow, 
and a male, middle-aged, fell into the gears. I got to him, tried to stop the bleeding, but there wasn't much to do. He hung in there for a while, but ended up DCDS. Deceased, confirmed dead at scene. Emergency switch. Somebody hit it, but that only shuts the stairs off, not the main motor. The gears keep going. Got him around the groin and belly. Man. The captain's lips tightened. He stepped forward to look down into the pit. Medino gave no reaction. He gripped his white tie to make sure it didn't swing forward and get soiled on the railing. Blood had made its way up there, too. Unemotional, he turned back to Sachs. You were down there? I was. Must have been tough. The sympathy in his eyes seemed genuine. Tell me about the weapons discharge. The motor, Sachs explained. There was no cutoff switch that I could find, no wires to cut. I couldn't leave him to find it or climb to the top to tell somebody to kill the juice. I was putting pressure on the wounds, so I parked around in the coil of the motor itself. Stopped it from cutting him in half. But he was pretty much gone by then. Lost 80% of his blood, the EMT said. Medina was nodding. That was a good try, detective. Didn't work. Not much else you could do. He looked back to the open access panel. We'll have to convene a shooting team, but on this scenario it will be a formality. Nothing to worry about. Appreciate that, Captain. Despite what one sees on screens large and small, a police officer's firing a weapon is a rare and consequential occurrence. A gun can be discharged only in the event the officer believes his or her life or that of a bystander is endangered or when an armed felon flees. And force can be used only to kill, not wound. A Glock may not be used like a wrench to shut off renegade machinery. In the event of a shooting by a cop on or off duty, a supervisor from the precinct where it happened comes to the scene to secure and inspect the officer's weapon. He then convenes the patrol borough shooting team which has to be run by a captain. Since there was no death or injury resulting from the shot, Sachs didn't need to submit to an intoxilizer test or go on administrative leave for the mandatory three days. And in the absence of malfeasance, she wasn't required to surrender her weapon. Just offered to the supervisor to inspect and note the serial number. She did this now. Deftly dropped the magazine and ejected the chambered round, then collected it from the floor. She offered the weapon to him. He wrote down the serial, handed the pistol back. She added, I'll do the firearms discharge assault report. No hurry, detective. It takes a while to convene the team, and it looks like you've got some other tasks on your plate. Medina was looking down into the pit once more. God bless you, detective. Not a lot of people would have gone down there. Sachs rechambered the ejected round. Officers from the 84 had cordoned off both of these escalators, so she turned and hurried toward the elevators on her way to the basement, where she'd help search for unsub-40. But she paused when Buddy Everett approached. He's gone, Amelia. Out of the building. His dark red frames both enhanced and jarred. How? Loading dock. We had people there, I thought. Rent-a-cops, if not ours. He called the unsub. He shouted from around the corner near the dock, said the perp was in a storage area. Bring their cuffs, mace, or whatever. You know rentals. They love a chance to play real cop. Everybody went running to the storeroom. He strolled right out. Video shows him. New jacket, dark sport coat, fedora, climbing down the dock ladder and running through the truck parking zone. Going where? Narrow focus camera. No idea. She shrugged. Subways? Buses? 
Nothing on CCTV. Probably walked or took a cab. To one of the 85 million places he might go. Dark jacket, you said? Sport coat? We canvassed the shops, but nobody saw anybody with his build by anything. Don't have his face. Think we can get prints from the ladder? At the dock? Oh, the vid shows he put gloves on before he climbed down. Smart. This boy is smart. One thing. He was carrying his cup and what seemed like some food wrappers. We looked, but he didn't drop them that we could find. I'll get an ECT on it. Hey, how'd it go with Captain White Tie? Oh, did I say that? She smiled. If you said it, I didn't hear it. He's already planning how to redecorate his office in the governor's mansion. Explained the posh outfit. Brass with aspirations. Good to have on your side. God bless you. Fine. It looks like he's backing me up on the weapons issue. He's a decent guy. Just promise you'll vote for him. Keep up the canvas, Sachs told him. Will do. Sachs was approached by an inspector with the fire department and gave a statement on the escalator accident. Twenty minutes later, the evidence collection team assigned to the unsub-40 case arrived from the NYPD's massive crime scene complex in Queens. She greeted them, two thirty-ish African-American techs, man and woman, she worked with from time to time. They wheeled heavy suitcases toward the escalator. Uh-uh, Sachs told them. That was an accident. The Department of Investigations will be coordinating that with the 8-4. I need you to walk the grid at Starbucks. What happened there? The woman officer asked, looking over at the coffee shop. A serious crime, her partner offered. Price of a frappuccino. Our unsub sat down for a late lunch. Some table in the back, you'll have to ask where. Tall, thin, green checkered jacket and Atlanta baseball cap. But there won't be much. He took his cup and wrappers with him. Hate it when they don't leave their DNA lying around. True that, Sachs said. But I'm hoping he ditched the litter somewhere close. You have any idea where? The woman asked. Looking over the staff in Starbucks, Sachs had, in fact, had an inspiration. Maybe but it's not in the mall. I'll check that out myself. You handle Starbucks. I always loved you, Amelia. You give us the warm and fuzzy, and you take the dark and cold. She crouched and pulled a blue Tyvek jumpsuit out of the case one of the ECTs had just opened. Standard operating procedure, right, Amelia? Bundle up everything and get it to Lincoln's townhouse? Sax's face was stony as she said, No, ship everything back to Queens. I'm running the case from downtown. The two ECTs regarded each other briefly and then looked back to Sachs. The woman asked, He's okay? Rhyme? Oh, you didn't hear? Sachs said tersely. Lincoln's not working for the NYPD anymore. Chapter 3 The answer is there. A pause as the words echoed off the glossy scuffed walls, their color academia green. That is, bile. The answer, it may be obvious, like a bloody knife emblazoned with the perp's fingerprints and DNA, inscribed with his initials and a quotation from his favorite poet, or obscure, nothing more than three invisible ligands. And what is a ligand? Anyone? Old factory molecules, sir? A shaky male voice. Lincoln Rhyme continued. Obscure, I was saying. The answer may be in three olfactory molecules, but it is there. 
The connection between the killer and Kill E that can lead us to his door and persuade the jury to relocate him to a new home for 20 to 30 years. Someone give me Locard's principal. A woman's voice said firmly from the front row. With every crime, there is a transfer of material between perpetrator and the scene or the victim, or most likely both. Edmond Locard, the French criminalist, used the word dust, but material is generally accepted. Trace evidence, in other words. The responder tilted her head, tossing aside long chestnut hair framing a heart-shaped face. She added, Paul Kirk elaborated, Physical evidence cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study, and understand it can diminish its value. Lincoln Rhyme nodded. Correct answers might be acknowledged but never praised. That was reserved for an insight that transcended the baseline. He was impressed nonetheless, as he had not yet assigned any readings that discussed the great French criminalist. He gazed out at the faces as if perplexed. Did you all write down what Miss Archer said? It appears some of you did not. I can't fathom why. Pens began to skitter, laptop keyboards to click, and fingers danced silently over two-dimensional keys of tablets. This was only the second class session of Introduction to Crime Scene Analysis, and protocols had yet to be established. The students' memories would be supple and in good form, but not infallible. Besides, recording on paper or screen means possessing not just comprehending. The answer is there, Rhyme repeated, well, professorially. With criminalists, forensic science, there's not a single crime that cannot be solved. The only question is one of resource, ingenuity, and effort. How far are you willing to go to identify the perp? As, yes, Paul Kirk said in the 1950s. He glanced at Juliet Archer. Rhyme had learned the names of only a few students. Archer's had been the first. Captain Rhyme? From a young man in the back of the classroom, which contained about thirty people, ranging from early twenties to forties, skewed toward the younger. Despite the stylish, spiky hipster hair, the man had police in him. While the college catalog bio, not to mention the tens of thousands of Google references, offered up Rhyme's official rank at the time he'd left the force on disability some years ago, it was unlikely that anyone unconnected to the NYPD would use it. With a genteel move of his right hand, Professor turned his elaborate motorized wheelchair to face student. Rhyme was quadriplegic, largely paralyzed from the neck down. His left ring finger, and now after some surgery, right arm and hand, were the only southern extremities working. Yes? I was thinking. Locard was talking about material or dust? A glance toward Archer in the front row, far left. Correct. Couldn't there also be a psychological transference? How do you mean? Say the perp threatens to torture the victim before he kills him. The victim is discovered with a look of terror on his face. We can infer that the perp was a sadist. You could add that to the psychological profile. Maybe narrow down the field of suspects. Proper use of the word infer, Rhyme noted. Often confused with the transitive imply. He said, a question. Did you enjoy that series of books, Harry Potter? Movies too, right? As a rule, cultural phenomena didn't interest him much, not unless they might help solve a crime, which happened more or less never. But Potter was, after all, Potter. The young man squinted his dark eyes. Yes, sure. You do know that it was fiction, right? 
that Hogwarts doesn't exist. Hogwarts, and I'm pretty aware of that, yes. And you'll concede that wizards casting spells, voodoo, ghosts, telekinesis, and your theory of the transfer of psychological elements at crime scenes are, are hogwash, you're saying? Drawing laughs. Rhymes, brows, veed, though not at the interruption. He likes insolence, and in fact the play on words was rather clever. His was a substantive complaint. Not at all. I was going to say that each of those theories has yet to be empirically proven. You present me with objective studies, repeatedly duplicating results of your purported psychological transference, which include a valid sampling size and controls supporting the theory, and I'll consider it valid. I myself wouldn't rely on it. Focusing on more intangible aspects of an investigation distracts from the important task at hand, which is... The evidence, Juliet Archer again. Crime scenes change like a dandelion under a sudden breath. Those three ligands are all that remain of a million only a moment earlier. A drop of rain can wash away a speck of the killer's DNA, which destroys any chance of finding him in the CODIS database and learning his name, address, phone number, social, and shirt size. A look over the room. Shirt size was a joke. People tended to believe everything that Lincoln Rhyme said. The hipster cop nodded but appeared to be unconvinced. Rhyme was impressed. He wondered if the student would in fact look into the subject. Hoped he did. There might actually be something to his theory. We'll speak more about Monsieur Locard's dust, that is, trace evidence, in a few weeks. Today our subject will be making sure that we have dust to analyze. Preserving the crime scene is our topic. You will never have a virgin crime scene. That does not exist. Your job will be to make sure your scenes are the least contaminated they can be. Now, what is the number one contaminant? Without waiting for a response, he continued, Yes, fellow cops, often, most often, brass. How we keep senior officials preening for news cams out of the scene while simultaneously keeping our jobs. The laughter died down and the lecture began. Lincoln Rhyme had taught on and off for years. He didn't particularly enjoy teaching, but he believed strongly in the efficacy of crime scene work in solving crimes. And he wanted to make sure the standards of forensic scientists were the highest they could be. That was, his standards. Many guilty people were getting off or were being sentenced to punishments far less severe than their crimes dictated, and innocent people were going to jail. He had resolved to do what he could to whip a new generation of criminalists into shape, a month ago, Rhyme had decided that this would be his new mission. He had cleared his criminal case workload and applied for a job at the John Marshall School for Criminal Justice, a mere two blocks from his Central Park West townhouse. In fact, he didn't even have to apply. Over drinks one night, he'd mused to a district attorney friend that he was thinking of hanging up his guns and teaching. The DA said something to somebody, and word got back to John Marshall, where the prosecutor taught part-time and the dean of the school called soon after. Rhyme supposed that because of his reputation, he was a solid commodity, attracting media and additional students, and possibly prompting a spike in tuition income. Rhyme signed on to teach this introductory course and advanced chemical and mechanical analysis of substances frequently found in felony crime scenes, including electron microscopy. It was indicative of his rep that the latter course filled up nearly as fast as the former. 
Most of the students were in or destined for policing work, local, state, or federal. Some would do commercial forensic analysis, working for private eyes, corporations, and lawyers. A few were journalists and one a novelist who wanted to get it right. Rhyme welcomed his presence. He himself was the subject of a series of novels based on cases he'd run and had written the author on several occasions about misrepresentations of real crime scene work. Must you sensationalize? After an overview, though a comprehensive one, of crime scene preservation, Rhyme noted the time and dismissed the class, and the students filed out. He wheeled to the ramp that led off the low stage. By the time he reached the main floor of the lecture hall, all those in class had left, except one. Juliet Archer remained in the first row. The woman, in her mid-thirties, had eyes that were quite remarkable. Rhyme had been struck by them when he'd seen her for the first time in class last week. There are no blue pigments in the human iris or aqueous humor. That shade comes from the amount of melanin in the epithelium, combined with the Rayleigh scattering effect. Archer's were rich cerulean. He wheeled up to her. Locard, you did some supplemental reading. My book. That was the language you paraphrased. He hadn't assigned his own textbook to the class. Needed some reading material to go with my wine and dinner the other day. Ah, she said. Well, no need to expand on the question. It simply reiterated an inquiry from last week, as well as several phone messages in the interim. Her radiant eyes remained steadily on his. He said, I'm not sure it'd be that good an idea. Not a good idea? Not helpful, I mean, for you. I disagree. She certainly didn't hem or haw. Archer let the silence unspool, then smiled a lipstick-free smile. You checked me out, didn't you? I did. You thought I was a spy? Working my way into your good graces? Stealing case secrets or something? Had occurred to him. Then he shrugged, a gesture he was capable of despite his condition. Just curious. Rhyme had in fact learned a number of things about Juliet Archer. Master's degrees in public health and biological science. She'd been a field epidemiologist for the Transmittable Diseases Unit of the New York Institutes of Health in Westchester. She now wanted a career change to go into criminal forensic science. Her home was presently downtown, the loft district, Soho. Her son, Eleven, was a star soccer player. She herself had gotten some favorable notices for her modern dance performances in Manhattan and Westchester. She'd lived in Bedford, New York, before her divorce. No, not a spy. She continued to gaze into his eyes. On impulse, exceedingly rare for him, he said, All right, a formal smile. Thank you. I can start now. A pause. Tomorrow. Archer seemed amused and cocked her head playfully, as if she might easily have negotiated and won a change in the sign-on date, but didn't feel like pushing the matter. You need the address? Rhyme asked. I have it. In lieu of shaking hands, they both nodded, sealing the agreement. Archer smiled, and then her right index finger moved to the touchpad of her own wheelchair. A silver storm arrow, the same model Rhyme had used until a few years ago. I'll see you then. She turned the unit and eased up the aisle and out the doorway. Chapter 4
The detached house was dark red brick. The color close to that of patrolman Buddy Everett's glasses frames. The color of dried blood, viscera. You couldn't help but think that, under the circumstances. Amelia Sachs was lingering, her eyes taking in the warm illumination from inside, which flickered occasionally as the many visitors here floated between lamp and window. The effect could be like a strobe. The house was small and the guests many. Death summons together those with even the most tenuous connections. Lingering. In her years as a police officer, Sachs had delivered news of loss to dozens of family members. She was competent at it, vamping on the lines they were taught by the psychologists at the academy. I'm very sorry for your loss. Do you have someone you can turn to for support? With a script like that, you had to improvise. But tonight was different. Because Sachs didn't believe she'd ever been present at the exact moment when a victim's electrons departed cells, or if you were of a different ilk, the spirit abandoned the corpus. She'd had her hands on Greg Fromer's arm at the moment of death, and as much as she did not want to make this trip, the pact had been sealed. She wouldn't break it. She slid her holster east of her hip out of sight. It seemed a decent thing to do, though she had no explanation why. The other concession to this mission was to make a stop at her apartment, also in Brooklyn, not terribly far, to shower and change clothes. It would have taken luminol and an alternative light source wand to find a speck of blood anywhere on her person. Up the stairs and ringing the bell. The door was opened by a tall man in a Hawaiian shirt and orange shorts, fifties or so. Of course, this was not the funeral. That would be later. Tonight, the gathering was the quick descent of friends and relatives to support, to bring food, to both distract from the grief and to focus it. Hi, he said. His eyes were as red as the lay around the neck of the parrot on his belly. Frommer's brother? The resemblance was jarring. I'm Amelia Sachs with the NYPD. Is Mrs. Frommer able to speak with me for a moment or two? She said this kindly, her voice cleansed of officialdom. I'm sure. Please come in. The house contained little furniture, and the pieces were mismatched and threadbare. The few pictures on the walls might have come from Walmart or Target. Fromer, she'd learned, had been a sales clerk at a shoe store in the mall, working for minimum pay. The TV was small and the cable box basic. No video game console, though she saw they had at least one child. A skateboard battered and wrapped in duct tape sat against a far corner. Some Japanese manga comics were stacked on the floor beside a scabby end table. I'm Greg's cousin, Bob. I'm so sorry about what happened. Sometimes you fell into rote. We couldn't believe it. The wife and I live in Schenectady. We got here as fast as we could, he said again. We couldn't believe it. To, well, die in an accident like that. Despite the tropical costume, Bob grew imposing. Somebody's gonna pay for this. That never should have happened. A few people of the other visitors nodded at her, eyeing her clothing, picked out carefully. Calf-length skirt and dark green, black jacket and blouse. She was dressed funereally, though not by design. This was Sax's typical uniform. Dark offers a more uncooperative target profile than light. I'll get Sandy. Thanks. Across the room was a boy of about twelve, flanked by a man and two women in their fifties, Sachs estimated. 
The boy's round, freckled face was red from crying, and his hair tousled badly. She wondered if he'd been lying in bed, paralyzed at the news of his father's death before family arrived. Yes, hello? Sax turned. The slim, blonde woman was very pale of face, a stark and unsettling contrast with the bold red of her lids and the skin around her eyes. Adding to the eeriness were her striking green irises. Her sundress in dark blue was wrinkled, and though her shoes were close in style, they were from different pairs. I'm Amelia Sachs with the police department. No shield display, no need. Sachs asked if they could have a word in private. Odd how much easier it was to level your Glock at a stoned perp leveling his at you at forty paces away, or downshift from fourth to second while turning at fifty, the tachometer redlined, to make sure some son of a bitch didn't get away. Steal yourself. You can do this. Sandy Fromer directed Sachs toward the back of the house, and they walked through the living room into a tiny den that she saw once they entered was the boys' room. The superhero posters and comics, the jeans and sweats and piles, the disheveled bed were evidence of that. Sachs closed the door. Sandy remained standing and regarded the visitor warily. I happened to be on the scene when your husband died. I was with him. Oh, my. Her look of disorientation swelled momentarily. She focused on Sax again. A policeman came to the door to tell me. A nice man. He wasn't at the mall when it happened. Somebody had called him. He was from the local precinct. An Asian man? Officer, I mean? Sax shook her head. It was bad, wasn't it? It was, yes. She couldn't deflate what had happened. The story had already made the news. The accounts were sanitized, but Sandy would eventually see medical reports and would learn exactly what Greg Fromer went through in his last minutes on Earth. But I just wanted you to know I was with him. I held his hand and he prayed, and he asked me to come see you and tell you he loved you and your son. As if suddenly on a vital mission, Sandy walked to her son's desk, on which sat an old model desktop computer. Beside it were two cans of soda, one crushed, a bag of chips, flattened, barbecue. She picked up the cans and set them in the trash. I was supposed to renew my driver's license. I only have two days. I didn't get around to it. I work for a maid service. We're busy all the time. My license expires in two days. So, her birthday soon. Is there someone here who could help you get to DMV? Sandy found another artifact, an iced tea bottle. It was empty, and that too went into the trash. You didn't have to come. Some people wouldn't have. Every word seemed to hurt her. Thank you. The otherworldly eyes turned to Sachs briefly, then dropped to the floor. She tossed the sweats into the laundry. She reached into her jean pocket and withdrew a tissue, dabbed her nose. Sachs noted that the jeans were Armani, but were quite faded and worn, and not in the factory-washed way of new garments. Sachs, former fashion model, had little regard for such useless trends. They'd either been bought secondhand, or, Sachs's guess, dated to an earlier and more comfortable era in the family's life. This might have been the case. She noted a framed picture on the boy's desk, the young man and his father a few years ago standing beside a private plane. Before them was fishing gear. 
Canadian or Alaskan mountains crested in the distance. Another of the family in box seats at what seemed to be the Indy 500. Is there anything I can do for you? No, officer, or detective, or Amelia. Amelia, that's a nice name. Is your son coping? Brian, I don't know how he'll do. He's angry now, I think, or numb. We're both numb. How old, twelve? Yes, that's right. It's been a tough few years, and that's a hard age. A tremble of lip, and then a harsh, who's responsible for it? How could something like that happen? I don't know. It will be investigated by the city. They do a good job. We put our faith in things like that. Elevators, buildings, planes, subways. Whoever makes them has to make them safe. How can we know if they're dangerous? We have to rely. Sachs touched her shoulder, pressed, wondering if the woman was going to dissolve into hysteria. But Sandy regained composure quickly. Thank you for coming to tell me that. A lot of people wouldn't. It seemed she'd forgotten she'd said this earlier. Again, if you need anything, Sachs placed one of her cards in her hand. They didn't teach this at the academy, and in truth, she didn't know what she could do to help the woman. Sachs was running on instinct. The card disappeared into the pocket of jeans that had originally cost three figures. I'll be going now. Oh, yes, thank you again. Sandy picked up her son's dirty dishes and preceded Sachs out of the doorway, vanished into the kitchen. Near the front hall, Sachs once more approached Fromer's cousin, Bob. She asked, how do you think she's doing? Well, as can be expected, we'll do what we can, the wife and me, but we've got three kids of our own. I could fit out the garage, I was thinking. I'm handy, the oldest boy too. How do you mean? Our garage, it's freestanding, you know, two car, heated because I have my workbench out there. They'd come live with you? With somebody, and I don't know who else it'd be. Schenectady? Bob nodded. They don't own this place, rent? Right, a whisper. And they're behind a couple of months. He didn't have life insurance? A grimace. No, he surrendered it, needed the money. See, Greg decided he wanted to give back. Quit his job a few years ago and started doing a lot of charity stuff. Midlife crisis or whatever. Working part-time at the mall so he'd be free to volunteer in soup kitchens and shelters. Good for him, I guess. But it's been tough on Sandy and Bry. Sachs said goodnight and walked to the door. Bob saw her out and said, Oh, but don't get the wrong idea. She turned, lifting an eyebrow. Don't think Sandy regretted it. She stuck by him through it all, never complained. And man, did they love each other. I'm walking toward my apartment in Chelsea, my womb, my space, good space. And looking behind me, of course. No cops are following, no red, the police girl. After the scare at the mall, I walked miles and miles through Brooklyn to a different subway line. I stopped once more for yet another new jacket and new head thing. Baseball cap, but a tan one. My hair is blonde and short, thinning, but best to keep it covered, I think, when I'm out. Why give the shoppers anything to work with? I'm calming now, finally. Hard not racing at every sight of a police car. It's taking forever to get home. Chelsea's a long, long way from Brooklyn. Wonder why it's called that, Chelsea. 
I think I heard it was named after some place in England. Sounds English. They have a sports team there named that, I think. Or maybe it's just someone's name. The street, my street, 22nd Street, is noisy, but my windows are thick, womb-like, I was saying. The roof has a deck, and I like it up there. Nobody from the building goes, not that I've seen. I sit there sometimes and wish I smoked, because sitting on an urban outcropping, smoking and watching the city, seems like the essential experience of New York, old and New York new. From the roof, you can see the back of the Chelsea Hotel. Famous people stay there, but stay as in live there. Musicians and actors and artists. I sit in my lawn chair, watch the pigeons and clouds and airplanes and the vista, and listen for music from the musicians living in the hotel, but I never hear any. Now I'm at the building's front door. Another glance behind. No cops. No red. Through the doorway and down the corridors of my building. The color of the paint on the walls is dark blue and... Hospitalian. I think of the shade. My word. Just occurred to me. I'll tell my brother when I see him next. Peter would appreciate that. A lot of serious in our past, so now I lean toward humor. The lighting in the hallways is bad, and the walls smell like they're made of old meat. Never thought I'd feel comfortable in a place like this, after growing up in green and lush suburbia. This apartment was meant to be temporary, but has grown on me. And I've learned the city itself is good for me. I don't get noticed so much. It's important for me not to get noticed, given everything. So, comfortable Chelsea. Womb. Inside, I put my lights on and lock the door. I look for intrusion, but no one's intruded. I'm paranoid, some would say. But with my life, it's not really paranoia now, is it? I sprinkle fish flakes on the fish's sky in the tank. This always seems wrong, this diet. But I eat meat, and a lot of it. I'm meat, too. So what's the difference? Besides, they enjoy it, and I enjoy the mini frenzy. They are gold and black and red, and dart like pure impulse. I go to the bathroom and take a shower, to wash off the worry from the mall. And the sweat, too. Even on a cold spring day like this, I'm damp with escape sweat. I put the news on. Yes, after a thousand commercials, a story fades onto the screen about the incident at the shopping center in Brooklyn. The escalator malfunction the man killed so horribly, and the gunshot. Well, that explains it. A police officer tried to stop the motor and rescue the victim by shooting it out. It didn't work. Was it Red who fired the futile bullet? If so, I give her credit for ingenuity. I see a message on the answering machine. Yes, old-fashioned. Vernon, hi, had to work late. Feel that tightness in my gut. she gonna cancel? But then I learn it's all right. So I'll be closer to eight, if that's okay. Her tone is flat, but then it always is. She's not a woman with spring in her voice. She's never laughed that I've seen. If I don't hear from you, I'll just come over. If that's too late, it's okay, just call me. Alicia's that way. Afraid something will break if she causes any disturbance, asks too much, disagrees, even if to anyone else it's not disagreement, but just asking a question or wondering. I can do anything to her. Anything. Which I like, I must say. It makes me feel powerful. It makes me feel good. People have done things to me that aren't so nice. This seems only fair. I look out the window for Red or any other cops. None. 
paranoia. I checked the fridge and pantry for dinner things. Soup, egg rolls, chili without beans, whole chicken, tortillas, lots of sauces and dips, cheese, skinny beans, Slim Jim. Yeah, that's me. But I eat like a stevedore. I'm thinking of the two sandwiches I had at Starbucks earlier. Particularly enjoyed the smoked ham. Recalling the scream, looking out. See Red scanning the coffee shop, not turning toward the scream like any normal human being would. Shopper. Spitting out the word, in my mind at least, furious at her. So, I need some comfort. I collect my backpack from its perch by the front door and carry it across the room. I punch numbers into the lock for the toy room. I installed the lock myself, which is probably not allowed in a rental. They don't let you do much when you rent. But I pay on time so no one comes to look. Besides, I need the toy room locked. So it's locked, all the time. I undo a strong deadbolt, and then I'm inside. The toy room is dim except for the bright halogens over the battered table that holds my treasures. The beams of light dance blindingly off the metal edges and blades, mostly shiny steel. The toy room is quiet. I soundproofed it well, carefully cutting and fitting sheets of wood and acoustic material over walls and mounting shutters on the window. One could scream oneself hoarse in here and not be heard outside. I take the bone cracker, the ball-peen hammer, from my backpack and clean and oil it and put it into its place on the workbench shelf. Then a new acquisition, a razor saw, serrated. I unbox it and test the edge with my finger. Whisk, whisk. It was made in Japan. My mother told me once that it used to be considered a bad thing, when she was growing up, to have a product made in Japan. How times have changed. Oh, my. This is really quite the clever device. A saw made from a long, straight razor. Test the edge again and, well, see? I've just removed a layer of epidermis. This, which already has become my new favorite implement, I place in a location of honor on the shelf. I have the absurd thought that the other implements will be jealous and sad. I'm funny that way. But when your life has been thrown off kilter by shoppers... You breathe life into inanimate things. Is that so odd, though? They're more dependable than people. I look at the blade once more. A reflected flash from the light smacks my eye, and the room tilts as the pupil shrinks. The sensation is eerie, but not unpleasant. I have a sudden impulse to bring Alicia here. Almost a need. I picture the light reflecting off the steel onto her skin, like it's doing on mine. I really don't know her well at all, but I think I will. Bring her here, I mean. A low feeling in my gut is telling me to. Breathing faster now. Should I do that? Bring her here tonight? That churning in my groin tells me yes. And I can picture her skin reflected in the metal shapes on the workbench, polished to mirror. I reflect it will have to be done at some point, won't it? Just do it now. Get it over with. Yes? No? I'm frozen. The buzzer sounds. I leave the toy room and go to the front door. Then have a fast thought, a terrible thought. What if it's not Alicia, but Red? No, no. Could that have happened? Red has such sharp eyes, which means a sharp brain. And she did find me at the mall. Get my bone cracker from the shelf and walk to the door. I push the intercom button and pause. 
Hello? Vernon, it's me? Alicia ends many sentences with question marks. She is such a bundle of uncertainty. Relaxing, I put the hammer down and hit the door release button. And a few minutes later, I see Alicia's face framed in the video screen, looking up at the tiny security camera above the door jamb. She enters, and we step into the living room. I smell her odd perfume, which has to me a faint scent of sweet onions. I'm sure it's not, but that's my impression. She avoids my eyes. I tower over her. She's tiny and slim, but not as bean as me. Hey, hi. We embrace. An interesting word. And I always thought it meant you brace yourself to touch someone you don't want to touch. Like my mother near the end. My father, always. The word doesn't mean that, sure. But it's what I think. Alicia shucks her jacket, hangs it up herself. She's not comfortable with people doing things for her. She's around 40, some years older than me. She's in a blue dress, which has a high neck and long sleeves. She rarely wears polish on her nails. She's comfortable with that image. School teacher-ish. I don't care. It's not her fashion choices that draw me to her. She was a school teacher when she was married. Dinner? I ask. No? Again, a question. And what she means is, no. Worried that one wrong word, one wrong punctuation mark will ruin the evening. You're not hungry? She glances toward the second bedroom. Just, is it all right? Can we make love, please? I take her hand and we walk through the living room toward the far wall. To the right is the toy room. The left, the back bedroom, the door open and the carefully made bed illuminated by a soft glow of nightlight. I pause for just a moment, eyes on the toy room door. She looks up at me, curious, but would never dream of asking, is something wrong? I make a decision and turn toward the left, leading her after me. Chapter 5 What happened? Lincoln Rhyme asked. The scene in Brooklyn. This was his way of tapping the maple tree. Sachs was not normally forthcoming with details or even clues about what was troubling her, just like him. Nor was either of them inclined to say, so what's wrong? But camouflaging the question about her state of mind under the netting of specifics concerning, say, a crime scene sometimes did the trick. Kind of a mess, and fell silent. Well, gave it a shot. They were in the parlor of his townhouse on Central Park West. She dropped her purse and briefcase onto a rattan chair. Going to wash up? She strode up the hall to the ground floor bathroom. He heard pleasantries exchanged between Sachs and Rhyme's aide, Tom Reston, preparing dinner. The smells of cooking wafted. Rhyme detected poaching fish, capers, carrots with thyme, a touch of cumin, probably in the rice. Yes, his olfactory senses, those clever ligands, where he believed enhanced following the crime scene accident years ago that had severed his spine and rendered him a C4 quad. However, this was an easy deduction. Tom tended to make this particular meal once a week. Not a foodie by any means, Rhyme nonetheless enjoyed the dish, provided it was accompanied by a crisp Chablis, which it would be. Sachs returned and Rhyme persisted. You're unsub. How are you identifying him again? I forgot. He was sure she'd told him. But unless a fact directly touched a project Rhyme was involved with, 
it tended to dissipate like vapor. On sub 40, after that club near where he killed the Vic, she seemed surprised he hadn't remembered. He rabbited? Yep, vanished. It was chaos because of the escalator thing. He noted that Sax didn't unholster her Glock and place it on the shelf near the front doorway into the hall. This meant she wouldn't be staying tonight. She had her own townhouse in Brooklyn and divided her time between there and here. Or she had until recently. For the past few weeks, she'd stayed here only twice. Another observation. Her clothing was pristine, not evidencing the dirt and blood that had to have resulted from her descent into the pit to try to rescue the accident victim. Since the unsub's escape and the escalator incident had been in Brooklyn, she would have gone home to bathe and change. Therefore, since she was planning on leaving again, why had she driven back here from that borough to Manhattan? Maybe for dinner? He was hoping so. Tom stepped into the parlor from the hallway. Here you go. He handed her a glass of white wine. Thanks, she sipped. Rhyme's aide was trim and as good-looking as a nautica model, today dressed in dark slacks, white shirt, and subdued burgundy and pink tie. He dressed better than any other caregiver Rhyme had ever had, and if the outfit seemed a bit impractical, the important part was attended to. His shoes were solid and rubber-soled, to safely transfer the solidly built rhyme between bed and wheelchair. And an accessory. Peeking from his rear pocket was a fringe of cornflower blue latex gloves for the piss and shit detail. He said to Sax, You sure you can't stay for dinner? No, thanks, I have other plans. Which answered that question, though the lack of elaboration only added to the mystery of her presence here now. Rhyme cleared his throat. He glanced at his empty tumbler, sitting mouth level on the side of the wheelchair. The cup holder was its first accessory. You've had two, Tom told him. I've had one, which you divided into two. Actually, I've had less than one, if I saw the quantity correctly. Sometimes he fought with the aide on this, and a dozen other subjects. But today, Rhyme wasn't in a truly petulant mood. He was pleased at how class had gone. On the other hand, he was troubled as well. What was up with Sax? But let us not parse too finely. Mostly he just wanted more goddamn scotch. He almost added that it had been one hell of a day, but that wouldn't have been the truth. It had been a pleasant day, a calm day, unlike the many times when he was half crazed from the pursuit of a killer or terrorist before he'd quit the police consulting business. Please and thank you. Tom looked at him suspiciously. He hesitated, then poured from the bottle of Glenmorangie, which, damn it, the man kept on a shelf out of reach, as if Rhyme were a toddler fascinated by a colorful tin of drain cleaner. Dinner in a half hour, Tom said, and vanished back to his simmering turbot. Sachs sipped wine, looking over the forensic lab equipment and supplies packed into the Victorian parlor. Computers, a gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer, ballistics examination units, Density gradient measurers, friction ridge imaging hoods, alternative light sources, a scanning electron microscope. With these and the dozens of examination tables and hundreds of tools, the parlor was a forensic lab that would be the envy of many a small or even medium-sized police department. Much of it was now covered with plastic tarps or cotton sheets, as unemployed as their owner. 
Rhyme still consulted some on non-criminal matters in addition to teaching, but most of his work involved writing for academia and professional journals. Her eyes, he saw, went to a dim corner where sat a half-dozen whiteboards on which they used to write down evidence gathered from scenes by Sachs and Rhyme's former protege, Patrolman Ron Pulaski. The threesome, along with another officer from CSU headquarters, would stand and sit before the boards and kick about ideas as to the perp's identity and whereabouts. The boards now faced away, toward the wall, as if resenting that Rhyme no longer had any use for them. After a moment, Sachs said, I went to see the widow. Widow? Sandy Fromer, the wife of the victim. It took him a moment to realize she wasn't speaking of the person killed by Unsub-40, but the man who died in the escalator accident. You have to deliver the news? Forensic cops like Rhyme rarely, if ever, charged with the difficult task of explaining that a loved one is no longer of this earth. No, just Greg, the Vic, wanted me to tell her he loved her and his son. When he was dying, I agreed. Good of you? A shrug. The son's twelve. Brian. Rhyme didn't ask how they were doing. Verbal empties, questions like that. Clutching her wine in both hands, Sachs walked to an unsterile table, leaned against it, returned his gaze. I was close. Almost had him. On sub-40, I mean. But then the accident, the escalator. I had to choose. Sipping wine. The right thing, Sachs. Of course, you had to do it. It was just a coincidence I tipped to him. There was no time, zero time, to put together a full takedown team. She closed her eyes. A slow shake of the head. A crowded mall. Just couldn't get it together. Sachs was her own harshest critic, and Rhyme knew the difficult circumstances of the impromptu takedown operation might dull the sting for some people. But with Sachs, they did not. He had evidence of this now. Sax's hand disappeared into her hair and she scratched her scalp. Then she seemed to sense she was doing so and stopped. Started again a moment later. She was a woman of great dynamics, some light, some dark. They came as a package. Forensics? he asked. On your unsub? Not much at Starbucks, where he was sitting. The unsub heard Greg Fromer scream, and like everybody else, looked toward it. I was in his line of sight. I guess he saw my piece or the shield on my belt. Knew what was going down, or suspected. So he left fast, took everything with him. Got some trace at the table, but he'd only been there for a few minutes. Exit route? Rhyme was no longer working for the NYPD, but obvious questions naturally flowed. Loading dock. Ron, some ECTs and some uniforms from the 8-4 on it, canvassing, and may have a secondary to search. We'll see. Oh, and I got a shooting team convened in my honor. Why? I blew away a motor. You? You didn't see the news? No. The Vic wasn't stuck in the steps of the escalator. He fell through onto the gears of the drive motor. No cutoff switch there. I shot out the coils of the motor. It was too late. Rhyme considered this. No one was injured by the shot, so they wouldn't put you on administrative. You'll get a no-action letter in a week or so. Hope so. Captain from the 8-4s on my side. As long as there are no reporters trying to make their careers with stories on cops shooting guns in malls, I'll be cool. I don't think that's much of a journalistic subspecialty, Rhyme said wryly. Well, Medino, the captain, 
He managed to purgatory the situation for a while. Love the word, Rhyme told her. Your end ran it, pleased with his own verbing. She smiled. Rhyme liked that. She hadn't been smiling a lot lately. She returned to the rattan chair near Rhyme and sat. The furniture made its distinctive mew, a sound Rhyme had never heard duplicated elsewhere. You're thinking, she said slowly. If I changed clothes at my house, which I did, and if I'm not staying here tonight, which I'm not, she cocked her head. Why'd I make the trip? Exactly. She set down her half-finished wine. I came by to ask you something. I need a favor. Your initial reaction is going to be to say no, but just hear me out. Deal? I wasn't brave enough. Not tonight. I didn't take Alicia to the toy room. I debated, but no. She's left. She's never stayed over. And I'm in bed, 11 p.m. or so, I don't know. Thinking of us in the bedroom earlier. Unzipping Alicia's blue dress, the teacher's dress, the zipper at the back. Modest. Bra was complicated. Not to undo, but the structure. Hard to see for certain, though, because, of course, we both prefer the lights dim. Then my clothes were off, too. My clothes, like queen sheets on a twin bed. Her tiny hands moved fast as hungry hummingbirds. Truly deft. And we played our game. Love that. Just love it. Though I have to be careful. If I don't think of something else, it's over too soon. Trot out thoughts and memories. A steel chisel I bought last week, considering what it would do to bone. Dinner at my favorite takeout place. The screams of the victim recently in the construction site near 40 degrees north, as the ball-peen hammer came down on his skull. I take this as proof I'm not truly a monster. Picturing the blood, the snap, doesn't make me finish faster, but dulls me a bit. Then Alicia and I found the pulse, and all was well. Until, damn it, the image of that police girl came to mind. Red. I pictured looking toward the screams from the escalator, seeing her, badge and gun and all, as she was looking toward me. Shadowed eyes, red hair flying. Looking away from the bloody escalator and the screams, looking for me, me, me. But, odd, though she gave me a terrible scare at the mall, though she's as bad as the worst shopper ever. Picturing her as I pushed a top tiny Alicia didn't slow me down. Just the opposite. Stop it, go away! My God, did I say that aloud? I wondered. Glanced at Alicia. No, she was lost in whatever place she goes to at times like this. But Red didn't go away. And it was over. Snap. Alicia seemed surprised a little at the speed. Not that she seemed to care. Sex feeds women many different courses, like tapas, where a man wants a single entree to wolf down and wolf fast. After we dozed, and I awoke thinking I was still empty somehow, I thought about the toy room, taking her there. Yes? I'd wondered. No? Then I told her to leave. Goodbye, goodbye. Nothing more than those words. And she left. Now I find my phone, listen to a voicemail message from my brother. Yo, next Sunday, Angelica or Film Forum? David Lynch or the man who fell to earth? Your call. Ha, no, actually it's my call, because it's me who dialed you. I love to hear his voice. Like mine, 
yet not like mine. I then wonder what to do with my wakefulness. There are plenty of plans I have to consider for tomorrow. But instead I fumble through the bedside table drawer, find the diary and continue writing passages. I'm transcribing, actually, from the MP3 player. It's always easier to talk. Let the thoughts fly like bats at dusk, going where they will. Then write it down later. These passages from the difficult days, the high school days, Who isn't glad to have left those times behind? I write in pretty good script. The nuns, they weren't bad, most of them. But when they insisted, you listened, you practiced, you pleased them. Well, what a day. At school until four, civics club project. Mrs. Hooper was happy about my work, took the secret way home. Longer but better. Know why? Obvious. Past the house that drapes out cobwebs at Halloween, past the pond that seems smaller every year, past Marjorie's house where I saw her that one time blouse open and she never knew. Was hoping, praying, I'd get home today okay. And I think I will. But then there they are. Sammy and Franklin. They're walking away from Cindy Hansen's house. Cindy could be a fashion model. So pretty. Sam and Frank, so handsome, or the sort could go out with her. I don't even talk to her. I don't exist to her. I'm not on this planet. Complexion clear, but too skinny, too gawky, too awkward. That's okay. That's the way the world works. Sam and Frank have never slugged me, pushed me down, rubbed my face in dirt or dog shit, but never been alone with them. No, they've looked at me some. Well, of course they have. Everybody in school has. If this was Duncan or Butler, I'd get wailed on, the crap totally beaten out of me because there aren't any witnesses around. So I guess same is going to happen with them. They're shorter than me, who isn't, but stronger and I can't fight, don't know how. Flail. That's what somebody said I was doing. I looked silly. Asked Dad to help. He didn't. Put on a boxing show on TV and left me to watch it. A lot of good that did. So now, getting beaten up because there aren't any witnesses around. No way I can turn. I just keep walking, waiting for the fists, and they're grinning, what the boys in school always do before the hitting. But they don't hit. Sam's like, hi, and asks if I live near here. A couple of blocks away, I tell him. So they know now this is a really weird way for me to get home from school, but they don't say anything. He just says, nice neighborhood here. Frank says he lives closer to the tracks, which is noisy and it kind of sucks. Then from Frank, dude, epic in class today. I'm like, I can't say anything. What he means is Mrs. Rich's class, Calc. She called on me because I was looking out the window, which she does when somebody's looking out the window to embarrass them. And without looking back, I said, G parentheses one equals H parentheses one plus seven equals negative 10.88222 plus seven equals negative 3.88222. Yeah, one of them says. Loved her face, Mrs. Bitch. You owned her, man. Epic. See you around. From Sam. And they just walk away. I don't get wailed on or spit on. Or told, dick bod, skinny bean, all of that. Nothing. A good day. Today was a good day. I pause the recorder and sip some water. Then ease down beside the pillow, still holding Alicia's scent. I used to think I would date a blind woman. Tried, but couldn't find one. They don't use personals. Maybe it's too risky. 
Blind women wouldn't care about too tall, too skinny, long face, long fingers, long feet, skinny worm freak, skinny bean boy, slim Jim. So a blind woman was my plan. But didn't work out. I meet somebody occasionally. It works okay for what it is. Then it ends. It always ends. It will end with Alicia, too. I think of the toy room. Then I'm back to the diary, transcribing again. Ten minutes, twenty. The ups and downs of life, recorded forever, just like my mementos on the shelves in the toy room. I remember the joy or sadness or anger surrounding each one. Today was a good day. Wednesday. Two. The Intern. Chapter Six. Mr. Rhyme, an honor. Not sure how to respond to that. A nod seemed appropriate. Mr. Whitmore. No nudge to first names. Rhyme had learned, however, that his was Evers. The attorney might have been transplanted from the 1950s. He wore a dark blue suit, gabardine, a white shirt whose collar and cuffs were starched to plastic. The tie, equally stiff, was the shade of blue that couldn't quite give up violet and was narrow as a ruler. A white rectangle peeked from the jacket's breast pocket. Whitmore's face was long and pallid and so expressionless, Rhyme thought for a moment that he had Bell's palsy or some paralysis of the cranial nerves. Just as that conclusion was reached, though, his brow furrowed ever so slightly as he took in the parlor and its CSI accoutrements. Rhyme realized that the man seemed to be waiting for an invitation to sit. Rhyme told him to do so, and, smoothing his trousers and unbuttoning his jacket, Whitmore picked a chair close by and lowered himself onto it, perfectly upright. He removed his glasses, cleaned the round lenses with a dark blue cloth, and replaced both on nose and in pocket, respectively. Upon meeting Rhyme, visitors generally reacted in one of two ways. The majority were stricken nearly dumb, blushing to be in the company of a man 90% of whose body was immobile. Others would joke and banter about his condition. This was tedious, though preferable to the former. Some, Rhyme's partiality, upon meeting him would glance once or twice at his body and move on, undoubtedly the same way they would assess potential in-laws. We'll withhold judgment till we get to the substance. This is what Whitmore now did. Do you know Amelia? Rhyme asked. No, I've never met Detective Sachs. We have a mutual friend, a classmate of ours from high school, Brooklyn, fellow attorney. She called Richard initially and asked him to consider the case, but he doesn't do personal injury law. He gave her my number. The narrowness of his face accentuated its pensive expression, and Rhyme was surprised to hear that he and Sachs were roughly the same age. He'd have thought Whitmore a half-dozen years older. When she called me about taking on a possible case and told me that you were free to be an expert witness, I was surprised. Rhyme considered the timeline implicit in his comment. Apparently, Sachs had committed Rhyme to be a consultant before she'd confessed to him that this was the reason she'd driven from the widow's house in Brooklyn to the parlor here last night. I came by to ask you something. I need a favor. But of course I'm pleased that you're available. All wrongful death litigation involves thorny evidentiary matters, and I know that will be particularly true in this case. You have quite the reputation. He looked around. Is Detective Sachs here? No, she's downtown, working a homicide case. But last night she told me about your client. Sandy, that's her name? The widow. Mrs. Fromer, yes, Sandy. Her situation's as bad as Amelia told me. 
I don't know what she told you. A precise correction of Rhyme's imprecision. He doubted Whitmore would be fun to share a beer with, but he would be a good man to have as your counselor, especially when cross-examining the other side. But I'll confirm that Mrs. Fromer is facing some very difficult times. Her husband had no life insurance, and he hadn't worked full-time for some years. Mrs. Fromer works for a house-cleaning service, but only part-time. They're in debt. Significant debt. They have some distant family, but nobody's in a position to help much financially. One cousin can provide temporary shelter in a garage. I've been practicing personal injury law for years, and I can tell you that for many clients, a recovery is a windfall. In Mrs. Fromer's case, it's a necessity. Now, Mr. Rhyme, excuse me, you were a captain on the police force, right? Should I call you that? No, Lincoln is fine. Now, I would like to tell you what our situation is. There was a robotic element to him. Not irritating, just plain odd. Maybe juries liked it. Whitmore opened his old-fashioned briefcase, again circa the 1950s, and withdrew some unlined white sheets. He uncapped a pen, not a fountain pen, Rhyme was mildly surprised to see, and in the smallest handwriting that was still possible for the unaided eye to read, he wrote what seemed to be the date and the parties present, the subject of the meeting. Unlined paper, yes, but the ascenders and descenders of the characters were as even as if they butted into a ruler. He looked at the sparse notes, seemed satisfied, and lifted his gaze. I intend to file suit in New York trial court, the Supreme Court, as you know. The forum, the lowest in the state, despite the lofty name, handled criminal cases as well as civil suits. Rhyme had testified there a thousand times as an expert witness for the prosecution. The complaints will be for wrongful death on the part of the widow, Mrs. Frommer, and the child. A teenage boy, right? No, twelve. Ah, yes. And for pain and suffering on behalf of Mr. Frommer's estate. My understanding is that he survived for perhaps ten minutes in extreme agony. That recovery will, as I say, go into his estate and inure to the benefit of whoever is mentioned in his testamentary documents or according to determination of the probate court if he had no will. In addition, I will be filing suit on behalf of Mr. Fromer's parents, whose support, to the extent he was able, he was contributing to. That will also be a wrongful death action. This was perhaps the least flamboyant, if not the most boring, attorney Rhyme had ever met. The ad damnum in my complaint, the demand for damages, is, frankly speaking, outrageously high. Thirty million for the wrongful death, twenty million for pain and suffering. We could never recover that. But I picked those sums merely to get the defendant's attention, and to create a little publicity for the case. I don't intend to go to trial. No? No. Our situation is a little unusual. Because of the absence of insurance and any other financial support for Mrs. Fromer and her son, they need a settlement quickly. A trial could take a year or more. They'd be destitute by then. They'll need money for shelter, the youngster's education, to buy health insurance, for necessaries. After we present a solid case against the defendants, and I indicate a willingness to reduce the demand considerably, I believe they'll write some checks that are minuscule to them, but sizable to Mrs. Fromer, and roughly in the amount that sees sufficient justice done. He'd be at home in a Dickens novel, Rhyme decided. Seems like a reasonable strategy. Now, can we talk about the evidence? A moment, please. Evers Whitmore was going to steam forward true to the course he'd set no matter what. First, I would like to explain to you the intricacies of the relevant law. Are you familiar with tort law? 
It was obvious that whether he said yes, no, or maybe was irrelevant. Attorney Whitmore was going to make him familiar. Not really, no. I'll give you an overview. Tort law deals with harm caused by the defendant to the plaintiff, other than a breach of contract. The word comes from Latin for twisted, tortoise. Rhyme had an affection for the classics. Indeed, Whitmore was neither impressed at Rhyme's knowledge nor disappointed that he'd missed an opportunity to expound. Car accidents, libel and slander, hunting accidents, lamps catching fire, toxic spills, plane crashes, assault, threatening to hit a person, and battery, actually hitting them. Those are often conflated, even intentional murder, which can be both criminal and civil. O.J. Simpson, thought Rhyme. Whitmore said, so a tortious action for wrongful death and personal injury. The first step is to find our defendant. Who exactly is responsible for Mr. Fromer's death? Our best hope is that it's the escalator and not some outside party. Under tort law, anyone injured by a product, anything, an appliance, car, drug, escalator, has a much easier time proving the case. In 1963, a justice on the California Supreme Court created a cause of action called Strict Products Liability to shift the burden of loss from an injured consumer to the manufacturer even when it wasn't negligent. In strict liability, all you need to show is that the product was defective and injured the plaintiff. What constitutes a defect? Rhyme asked, finding himself reluctantly intrigued by the lecture. A key question, Mr. Rhyme. A defect can be that it was badly designed, that it had a weakness or flaw in the manufacturing, or there was a failure to adequately warn the consumer of dangers. Have you seen a baby stroller lately? Why would I? Rhyme's lips formed a faint smile. Whitmore seemed immune to irony and continued, You'd appreciate the sticker. Remove infant before folding stroller closed. I'm not making that up. Of course, yes, it's called strict liability, but not absolute. There does have to be a defect. Someone who uses a chainsaw to attack a victim, for instance, is an intervening cause. The plaintiff can't sue the saw manufacturer for an assault like that. Now, to our case, the first question is, whom do we sue? Was there a design or a manufacturing flaw in the Midwest conveyance escalator itself? Or was it in good working order and the mall management company, a cleaning crew or a separate maintenance company, was negligent in repairing or maintaining it? Did a worker not latch it closed last time it was opened? Did someone manually open the panel while Mr. Fromer was on it? Did the general contractor who built the mall render the unit dangerous? The subcontractor who installed the escalator? What about component parts manufacturers? What about the mall cleaning staff? Were they working for an independent contractor or employees of the mall? This is where you come in. Rhyme was already thinking of how to proceed. First, I'll need to have someone inspect the escalator, the controls, the crime scene photos, trace, and... Ah, now, I must tell you... Our situation has a slight wrinkle. Well, several wrinkles. Rhyme's brow rose. Whitmore continued. Any accident involving an escalator, elevator, moving sidewalk, etc. is investigated by the Department of Buildings and the Department of Investigation. Rhyme was familiar with the DOI, one of the oldest law enforcement agencies in the country, going back to the early 19th century. The division was charged with overseeing government employees, agencies, and anyone who contracted or worked with the city. Because he himself was rendered a quad while investigating a crime scene in a subway construction site, 
the DOI was involved with the investigation into how that accident happened. Whitmore continued, We can use the findings in our suit, but it'll take months to get their report. Exactly the problem, Mr. Rhyme. Six months, a year, more likely. Yes, and we can't wait that long. Mrs. Fromer will be homeless by then, or living with her relatives in Schenectady. Wrinkle one. And two? Access to the escalator. It's being removed and impounded in a city warehouse pending investigation by the DOI and DOB. Hell, already major evidence contamination, Rhyme thought instinctively. Get a subpoena, he said. This was obvious. I can't at this point. As soon as I file suit, that'll be within the next few days, I can serve a duchess tecum. But a judge will quash it. We won't get access until DOI and DOB have finished their investigation. This was absurd. The escalator was the best evidence, possibly the only evidence in the case, and he couldn't get his hands on it? Then he remembered. Of course, it's a civil, not a criminal matter. We can also subpoena design, manufacturing, installation, and maintenance records from the possible defendants, the mall, the manufacturer, Midwest Conveyance, the cleaning company, anyone else with any connection to the unit. Those we might get copies of, but it'll be a fight. And the motions will go back and forth for months before they're released. Finally, the last wrinkle. I mentioned that Mr. Fromer wasn't working full-time any longer. I recall. A midlife crisis or some such? That's correct. He quit a high-pressure corporate position. Lately, he worked jobs that he didn't have to take home at night. Delivery man, telemarketer, order taker in a fast food restaurant, a shoe salesman at the mall. Most of his time was spent volunteering for charities. Literacy, homelessness, hunger. So for the past few years, he's had minimal income. One of the hardest parts of our case will be convincing a jury that he would have gotten back into the workforce in a job like the one he had. What did he used to do? Before he quit, he was director of marketing, Patterson Systems in New Jersey. I looked it up. Very successful company. Number one fuel injector maker in America. And he made solid six figures. Last year, his income was 33000 the jury awards wrongful death damages based on earnings. The defendant's attorneys will hammer home that even if their clients are liable, the damages were minimal since he was making just enough to live on. I will be trying to prove that Mr. Fromer was going through a phase that he was going to get back into a high-paying job. Now, I may not succeed at that. So this is your second task. If you can make the case that the defendant, whoever it or they turn out to be, engaged in wanton or reckless behavior in building the escalator or a component part or in failing to maintain the device, then we'll add a punitive damage claim. And the jury, which feels bad that they can't award the widow much by way of future earnings, will compensate with a big punitive award. Well observed, Mr. Rhyme. You should have gone to law school. So, there we have our situation in a nutshell. Rhyme said, In other words, Find out how a complex device failed and who's responsible for that failure without having access to it, the supporting documentation, or even photographs or analysis of the accident. And that is well put, too. Whitmore added, Detective Sachs said you were rather creative when it came to approaching a problem like this. How creative could one be without the damn evidence? Absurd. Rhyme thought again. The whole thing was completely...
Then a thought occurred. Whitmore was speaking, but Rhyme ignored him. He turned toward the doorway. Tom! Tom! Where are you? Footsteps. And a moment later, the aide appeared. Is everything all right? Fine, fine, fine. Why wouldn't it be? I just need something. And what's that? A tape measure. And the sooner the better. Chapter 7 Ironic. One police plaza is considered to be among the ugliest government structures in New York City. Yet it offers some of the finest views in downtown Manhattan. The harbor, the East River, the soaring, let-the-river-run skyline of New York at its most muscular. By contrast, the original police headquarters on Center Street is arguably the most elegant building south of Houston Street. But in the day, officers stationed there could look out only on tenements, butchers, fishmongers, prostitutes, ne'er-do-wells, and muggers lying in wait. Police officers were at the time prime targets for thieves who valued their wool uniforms and brass buttons. Walking into her office, now in the Major Cases Division at 1PP, Amelia Sachs was gazing out the speckled windows as she reflected on this fact. Thinking, too, she couldn't have cared less about either the building's architectural aesthetics or the view. What she objected to was that she plied her investigative skills here and not from Lincoln Rhymes Townhouse. Hell. Not happy about his resigning from the police consulting business. Not happy at all. Personally, she missed the stimulation of the give and take, the headbutting, the creativity that flourished from the gestalt. Her life had become like studying at an online university. The information was the same, but the process of loading it into your brain was diminished. Cases weren't progressing. Homicides in particular. Rhymes' specialty were not getting solved. The Ronaldo case, for instance, had been on her docket for about a month and was going nowhere. A killing on the west side, south of Midtown. Eki Ronaldo, a minor player and drug dealer, had been slashed to death and slashed vigorously. The street and alley had been filthy, so the inventory of Trace was voluminous and therefore not very helpful. Cigarette butts, a roach clip with a bit of pot still clinging, Food wrappers, coffee cups, a wheel from a child's toy, beer cans, a condom, scraps of paper, receipts, a hundred other items of effluvia common to New York City streets. None of the fingerprint or footprint evidence she'd found at the scene had panned out. The only other lead was a witness, the deceased's son. Well, witness of sorts. The eight-year-old hadn't seen the killer clearly but had heard the assailant jump into a car and give an address, which included the word village. A male voice, more likely white than black or Latino. Sachs had exhausted her interview skills to get the boy to recall more, but he was, understandably, upset, seeing his father in the alley cascading with blood. A canvas of cabs and gypsy drivers revealed nothing, and Greenwich Village covered dozens of square miles, but she was convinced that Rhyme could have reviewed the massive evidence and come to a conclusion about where, in that quaint portion of Manhattan, the perp had most likely gone. He'd started to help, but then said no, and had reminded her coolly that he was no longer in the criminal business. Sachs smoothed her charcoal gray skirt just past the knees. She thought she'd selected a lighter gray blouse to compliment, but had realized on the sidewalk in front of her townhouse as she left that it was the taupe one. Those were her typical mornings. 
much distraction. She now reviewed emails and phone messages, decided they were neglectable, and then headed up the hall toward the conference room she'd commandeered for the unsub-40 case, thinking again about Rhyme. Resigned. Hell. She glanced up and noted a young detective walking the opposite way turned toward her suddenly. She realized she must have uttered the word aloud. She gave him a smile to prove she wasn't deranged and dodged into her war room, small, set up with two fiberboard tables, twin computers, one desk, and a whiteboard on which details of the case were jotted in marker. Any minute, said the young blonde officer inside, looking up. He was in dark blue NYPD uniform, sitting at the far table. Ron Pulaski was not a detective, as were most officers in the Major Cases Division, but he was the cop Amelia Sachs had wanted to work the unsub-40 case with. They'd run scenes for years, always until now, from Rhymes Parlor. Pulaski nodded at the screen. They promised. Any minute. How much did they get? Not sure. I wouldn't expect his address and phone number. But the ECT said they had some hits. It was a good call, Amelia. After the disaster, the word applied in several senses. The victim's death, as well as losing unsub-40 at the mall in Brooklyn, Sachs had methodically examined the area behind the loading dock and debated where to send the Brooklyn evidence collection teams. You can't search everywhere. One place that particularly intrigued her was a cheap Mexican restaurant whose back door opened onto a cul-de-sac near the loading dock. It was the only food venue nearby. There were other, faster ways for their unsub to have fled, but Sachs concentrated the canvassing there on the perhaps far-fetched theory that the restaurant would be more likely than other stores to have undocumented employees who'd be less cooperative, not wanting to give their names and addresses as witnesses. As she'd guessed, no one from manager to dishwasher, had seen the rather recognizable suspect. Which didn't mean he hadn't been there, however. In the refuse bin for customers, the search team had found the Starbucks cup, along with the cellophane sandwich wrappers and napkins from the chain, which he'd been seen carrying as he fled. They'd collected all the trash from that container at La Festiva, which may or may not have been a real Spanish word. The analysis of this evidence was what they were presently awaiting. Sachs dropped into the chair she'd wheeled here from her minuscule office, reflecting that if they'd been working out of Rhyme's parlor, the data would have been in their hands by now. Her phone sang with an email tone. It was good news from the captain at the 84, Medino. He said there was no hurry on her shooting incident report. It was taking some time to get the borough shooting team together. He added that, as she and Rhyme had discussed earlier, a few reporters had called, inquiring about the wisdom of firing a weapon in a crowded mall, but Medino deflected them by saying the matter was being investigated according to department procedures and didn't release her name. None of the journalists followed up. All good news. Now Pulaski's computer offered up a ship's bell ding. Okay, here it is. Evidence analysis. As he read, the young man's hand went to his forehead and rubbed briefly. The scar wasn't long but it was quite obvious today, from this angle, in this light. In the first case that he'd run with Sax and Rhyme, he'd made a mistake, and the perp, a particularly vicious professional killer, had clocked him in the head. The resulting injury, which had affected his brain as well as his pride and appearance, had nearly ended his career. But determination, encouragement from his twin brother, 
also a cop, and Lincoln Rhymes' persistence had kept him in blue. He still had moments of uncertainty. Head injuries poisoned self-confidence. But he was one of the smartest and most dogged officers Sachs knew. He sighed. Not a whole lot. What is there? Trace from the Starbucks shop itself, nothing. From the Mexican restaurant, DNA from the rim of the Starbucks cup, but no CODIS match. It's rarely that easy. No friction ridges, Pulaski said. What? He wore gloves in the Starbucks? Looks like he used the napkin to hold the cup. The tech at CSU used vacuum and anhydrin, but only a partial showed up. From the tip, too narrow for IAFIS. The National Fingerprint Database was comprehensive, but only prints that came from the pads of fingers, not the very end, were usable. But again, she wondered. Had the evidence gone to rhyme for analysis and not to the CSU lab in Queens, would he have been able to raise a fingerprint? The lab facility at headquarters was state-of-the-art, but it wasn't, well, it wasn't Lincoln Rhymes. Shoe print from Starbucks, probably his, Pulaski read, since it was superimposed over others and matched one on the loading dock and at the Mexican restaurant. Similar trace found in tread from the dock and restaurant. It's a size 13 Reebok, Daily Cushion 2.0. The trace chemical profile's here. She looked at the screen and read out a list of chemicals she'd never heard of. Which is, Pulaski scrolled down, probably humus. Dirt? The blonde officer continued to read the fine print. Humus is the penultimate degree of decomposition of organic matter. She recalled an exchange between Rhyme and Pulaski years ago, when the rookie had used penultimate to mean final as opposed to the proper meaning next to last. The memory was more poignant than she wished. So, soon to be dirt. Pretty much. And it came from somewhere else. It doesn't match any of the control samples that you or the ECT collected in and around the mall, loading dock, and restaurant. He continued to read. Well, not so good here. What's that? Dinotrinoline. Never heard of it. A number of uses. Dyes, pesticides, for instance. But the number one? Explosives. Sachs pointed to the chart from the murder scene itself. The construction site where Unsub 40 beat Todd Williams to death near the club a couple of weeks ago. Ammonium nitrate. Fertilizer. And the major explosive ingredient in homemade bombs, like the one that destroyed the Oklahoma City Federal Building in the 90s. So, Pulaski said slowly, you think there's more to it than a robbery? The unsub was, I don't know, buying bomb ingredients near 40 degrees north or the construction site, and Williams saw it. He tapped the computer screen. And look at this. In trace collected near a footprint at the mall loading dock was a small amount of motor oil. The second ingredient in a fertilizer bomb. Sachs sighed. Were there terrorist dimensions to this unsub? Though the murder had occurred at a job site, these chemicals would not have been used for commercial demolition. Keep going. More phenol. Like we found at the first murder scene. If it's shown up twice, it's significant. What's that used for? Pulaski called up a profile of the chemical. Phenol, a precursor in making plastics like polycarbonates, resins, and nylon. Also in making aspirin, embalming fluid, cosmetics, ingrown toenail cures. Forty had big feet, maybe nail problems. 
Then this. He was transcribing a long list of other chemicals onto a whiteboard evidence chart. Mouthful, she said. Profiles as makeup. Cosmetics. No idea of the brand. Need to know who makes it. Have someone in HQ track it down. Pulaski sent the request. Then they returned to the evidence. He said, have a tiny shaving of metal from the footprint in the hallway leading to the loading dock. Let me see it. Pulaski called up the photos. Hard to make out to the eye, whether naked or stylishly covered with drugstore-bought rating glasses, which Sachs had had to resort to lately. She cranked up the magnification and studied the shiny bit, then turned to the second laptop, typed her way into an NYPD database of metal trace, which, as it turned out, Lincoln Rhyme had established several years earlier. Together they scanned the database. Something similar there, said Pulaski, standing over her shoulder as he pointed at one of the photos. Yes, good. The tiny fleck was from the process of sharpening a knife, scissors, or razor. It's steel. He likes a sharp blade. He'd beaten the victim to death outside 40 degrees north, but that didn't mean he wasn't interested in dispatching victims with other weapons as well. On the other hand, he might recently have done nothing more than carved up the family's chicken dinner with a knife he'd just dramatically edged first tableside. Pulaski continued. And some sawdust. Want to see? She looked at the microscopic images. The grains were very fine. From sanding, you think? She mused. Not sawing? I don't know. Makes sense. She clicked a finger against a thumbnail, twice. Tension rippled through her. The analyst in Queens didn't tell us the type of wood. We need to find that out. I'll request it. Rubbing his forehead with one hand, Pulaski scrolled through more analyses with the other. Looks like hammers and bombs aren't enough. This guy wants to poison people too? Significant traces of organochlorine and benzoic acid. Toxins, typical of insecticides, but they've been used in homicides, and more chemicals that... He regarded a database. Profile as varnish. Sawdust and varnish. He's a carpenter, construction worker, or somebody putting his bombs in wooden boxes or behind paneled walls. But since there'd been no reports of improvised explosive devices in the area, encased in wood or otherwise, Sachs put this possibility low on the likelihood scale. I want the manufacturer... Sack said. The varnish, the type of sawdust, too. Pulaski said nothing. She glanced his way and noted that he was looking at his phone. A text. Ron? He started and slipped the phone away. He'd been preoccupied lately. She wondered if there was an illness in the family. Everything okay? Sure, fine, she repeated. I want the manufacturer. Of the... Oh, the varnish. Of the varnish and type of wood, and brand of makeup. I'll get on it. He sent another request to the crime lab. They turned to the secondary category of evidence, that which might or might not have come from the unsub. The ECTs had collected the entire contents of the bin where they found the Starbucks trash, on the theory that the rubbish from the coffee chain might not have been the only things the perp discarded. There were 30 or 40 items, napkins, Newspapers, plastic cups, used Kleenex, a porn magazine probably ditched before hubby returned home to the family. Everything had been photographed and logged, but nothing, the analysts in Queens reported, seemed relevant.
Sachs, however, spent twenty minutes looking at each item, both individual shots of the evidence in the bin and wide-angle images before the bin's contents were collected by the ECTs. Check this out, she said. Pulaski walked closer. She was indicating two napkins from a White Castle fast food restaurant. Home of the slider, Pulaski added. What is that, by the way? Sachs shrugged. She knew it was a small hamburger. No idea where the name had come from. One of the earliest fast food franchises in America. White Castle specialized in burgers and milkshakes. Any friction ridges? Pulaski read the report. None. How hard did they try? She wondered. Recalling that Rhyme's two nemeses were incompetence and laziness, Sachs stared at the napkins. Odds they came from him? Pulaski enlarged the wide-angle shots. The rumpled White Castle napkins were directly beside the Starbucks discards. Could be. Our boy likes chain food, we know. A sigh. Napkins are one of the best sources for DNA. The analyst could have run them, compared it with Starbucks. Lazy. Incompetent. Then she relented. Or he was just overworked. The story of policing. Sachs called up the images of the opened napkins. Each contained stains. What do you think? Sachs asked. One's brown, the other reddish. Can't tell. If we had our hands on them ourselves, we could do a color temperature to be sure. At Lincoln's, I mean. Tell me about it. Sachs said, I'm thinking on one napkin, chocolate and strawberry milkshakes. Reasonable deduction. And the other? That stain is definitely chocolate. Another stain, too. Less viscous, like a soft drink, from two different visits. One, he has two shakes. The other, a shake and a soda. Skinny guy, but he can sure pack the calories away. But more important, he likes White Castle, a repeat customer. If we're lucky, he lives nearby. But which one? Pulaski was online checking out the restaurant chain in the area. There were several. A click in her thoughts. The motor oil. Maybe the oil's a bomb. Or maybe he goes to the White Castle in Queens, she said. It's on Astoria Boulevard, Automotive Row. My dad and I used to buy auto parts there Saturday morning, then go back home and play amateur mechanics. Maybe he picked up the oil trace getting lunch. Long shot, but I'm going to go talk to the manager there. You call the lab in Queens and have somebody go over those napkins again. Fine-tooth cliché. Friction ridges. DNA, too. Maybe he ate with a friend and the buddy's DNA is in CODIS. And stay on the sawdust. I want the type of wood. And keep after them for the manufacture of the varnish. And I don't want the analyst who did this report. Call Mel. Quiet, self-effacing Detective Mel Cooper was the best forensic lab man in the city, perhaps in all of the Northeast. He was also an expert at human identification. Friction ridge prints, DNA and forensic reconstruction. He had degrees in math, physics, and organic chemistry, and was a member of the prestigious International Association for Identification and the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. Rhyme had hired him away from a small-town police department to work the NYPD crime scene unit. Cooper was always a part of the Rhyme team. As Sachs pulled on her jacket and checked her weapon, Pulaski made a call to the CSU to request Cooper's assistance. She was at the door when he disconnected and said, Sorry, Amelia. Have to be somebody else. What? Mel's on vacation all week. She exhaled a fast laugh. In all the years they'd worked together, 
She'd never known the tech to take more than a day off. Find somebody good then, she said, walking briskly into the hallway and thinking, Rhyme retires and everything goes to hell. Chapter 8 Is that? That's an escalator. Yes, it is. Well, a portion of one, the top part, sitting in your hallway, but I guess you know that. Mel, come on in. We've got work to do. Cooper, diminutive, slim, and with a perpetual faint smile on his face, walked into the parlor of Rhyme's townhouse, shoving his dark-rimmed glasses higher on his nose. He moved silently. He wore his standard footgear, hush puppies. The men were alone. Evers Whitmore had returned to his midtown law firm. When no immediate explanation for the partial escalator, which was encased in a scaffolding, was forthcoming, he slipped off his brown jacket, hooked it, and set down a gym bag. I wasn't really planning on a vacation, you know. Rhyme had suggested, in Lincoln Rhyme's inimitable way, that Cooper take some time off. That is, time off from his official job at crime scene headquarters and come in to help on the civil case of Fromer v. Midwest Conveyance. Yes, well, appreciate it. Rhyme's thanks were subdued as always. He didn't have much interest in or skill at social niceties. Is it, I mean, I thought I should check, are there any ethical problems with me being here? No, no, I'm sure there aren't, Rhyme said, eyes on the escalator, which reached to the ceiling. As long as you don't get paid. Ah, so I'm volunteering. Just a friend helping in a good cause, Mel. A noble cause. The victim's widow has no money. She has a son. Good boy. Promising. Rhyme assumed this was likely. He didn't know a thing about young Fromer, whose given name he'd forgotten. If we can't get her a settlement, she'll be living in a garage in Schenectady for the immediate future. Maybe the rest of her life. Nothing so terrible about Schenectady. The operative word is garage, Mel. Besides, it'll be a challenge. You like challenges. To a point. Mel, Tom said, stepping into the parlor. What are you doing here? Abducted. Welcome. Then the aide scowled. Can you believe it? Look at that. A disappointed nod toward the scaffolding and escalator. The floors. I hope they're not ruined. They're my floors, Rhyme said. You charge me with keeping them pristine, then undermine it with two tons of mechanical device. To the forensic tech. Food, drink? A tea would be lovely. I've got your favorite. Cooper liked Lipton's. He had simple tastes. And how's your girlfriend? Cooper lived with his mother, but had a tall, gorgeous Scandinavian paramour, a professor at Columbia. She and Cooper were champion ballroom dancers. She's- We're just getting to work here. Rhyme interrupted. Tom lifted an eyebrow to the tech, ignoring his boss. Fine, thanks, Cooper replied. She's fine. We have the regional tango competition next week. And speaking of beverages, Rhyme looked at the bottle of single malt scotch. No, Tom said bluntly. Coffee, and returned to the kitchen. Rude. So, what's the caper? Love that word. Rhyme explained about the escalator accident and the suit that would be filed by Evers Whitmore on behalf of the widow and her son. Ah, right, in the news, terrible. Cooper shook his head. Never felt really comfortable getting on and off those things. I'll take the stairs or even an elevator, though I'm not so crazy about them either. 
He walked to the computer monitor, on which were dozens of photographs of the accident site, taken by Sachs, unofficially, since she hadn't been involved in the mishap investigation. They were of the open access panel to the pit, showing the motor and gears and walls, all covered with blood. Died from hemorrhaging? And trauma. Cut mostly in half. Hmm. Is that the actual unit? Cooper returned to the scaffolding and began examining it closely. No blood. It's been scrubbed? No. Rhyme explained about the impossibility of getting access to the actual escalator for several months. But he hoped they could determine a likely cause of the failure from this mock-up. Rhyme's idea was to pay to borrow a portion of an identical model from a contractor in the area. Tom had found the tape measure Rhyme had requested, and they determined there was enough clearance to get the machinery through the front door, disassembled, and put it back together in the hallway. The price for the rental was 5000 which Whitmore would add to his legal fee and deduct from whatever they recovered from the defendant. Workers had built a scaffolding and mounted the top plate, the access panel that had opened to swallow up Greg Fromer, along with its supporting pieces, hinges, and portions of the railing and control switches. On the floor were the motor and the gears, identical to those that had killed the victim. Cooper was walking silently around the device, looking up, touching pieces. It won't be evidentiary. No, we just need to find out what went wrong, why the panel at the top opened when it shouldn't have. Rhyme wheeled closer. The tech was nodding. So I deduced that the escalator was going up at the time, and just as the victim got to the top floor panel, it popped up. How far open was it? Amelia said about 14 inches. She ran the scene? No, she just happened to be there at the time, tracking an unsub. She lost him when the accident happened, and she tried to save the Vic. Couldn't. And the perp got away? Yes. She wouldn't have been happy about that. She went to see the widow and found out she's in a pretty bad way. Had the idea to hook her up with a lawyer. That's how it all ended up in our laps. So the access panel pops up. Yes, I see it's on a spring. Must be heavy. The Vic gets dragged underneath and then falls onto the motor and gears. Right. The teeth on the front edge of the panel cut him too. That's all the blood on the walls in the pictures. I see. Now I want you to get inside, poke around, find out how the damn thing works. How the access panel at the top opens. Switches, levers, hinges, safety mechanisms, everything. Get pictures, and we'll try to piece together what happened. Cooper looked around. This place hasn't changed much since you resigned. Then you know where the camera equipment's located, Rhyme said, his voice taut with impatience. The tech chuckled. And you haven't changed much either. He went to the shelves on a back wall of the parlor and selected a camera and flashlight with a headband. Coal miner's son, he joked, mounting it on his forehead. Shoot away, go. Cooper climbed up inside the mock-up. Silent flashes began to flare. The doorbell sounded. Who could this be? The stiff attorney, Evers Whitmore, was back in his office talking to friends and family of Greg Fromer. He was trying to marshal evidence to prove that, although presently underemployed, Fromer would have gone back to being a successful marketing manager in the near future, allowing the damage claim to be much higher than one based on his recent income. Was the visitor one of his doctors? Rhyme's quadriplegic condition necessitated regular exams by neurospecialists, as well as physical therapists, but he had no session scheduled. He wheeled to the closed-circuit security camera screen to see who it might be. Oh, hell.
Rhyme typically was irritated when people arrived unannounced, or announced for that matter. But today the dismay was far more intense than usual. Yes, yes, the man was assuring Amelia Sachs. I know who you're talking about. Quiet guy. She was speaking to the manager of the Queen's White Castle hamburger joint in Astoria. Very tall, very skinny, white, pale. The manager was, in contrast, an olive-skinned man with a round, cheerful face. They were at the front window. He had been cleaning it himself, seemingly proud of the establishment in his care. The smell of Windex was strong, as was the aroma of onions. Appealing to the latter. Sax's last meal was supper yesterday. Do you know his name? I don't know, but... He looked up. Char? A counterwoman in her twenties looked over. If she ate the restaurant's specialty, she did so in moderation. The slim woman finished an order and joined the two. Sachs identified herself, and protocol showed the shield. The woman's eyes shone. She was tickled to be part of a CSI moment. Charlotte works a lot of shifts. She's our anchor. A blush. Mr. Rodriguez thought you might know a tall man who comes in some, Sachs said. Tall, very thin, white. He might have worn a green checkered or plaid jacket. A baseball cap. Sure, I remember him. Do you know his name? No, just, he's hard to miss. What can you tell me about him? Well, like you said, thin, skinny, and he eats a lot. Ten, fifteen sandwiches. Sandwiches, burgers. But he could be buying them for other people, couldn't he? No, 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 he eats them here most of the time. There's this word my mother says about eating. Scarfs them down. And two milkshakes. So skinny, but he eats like that. Sometimes a milkshake and a soda. How long have you been a detective? A few years. That's so neat. Was he ever with anyone? Not that I saw. He comes here often? Maybe once a week, every two weeks? Any impression that he lives around here? Sachs asked. Anything he might have said? No, never said anything to me. Just ordered, always kept his head down, wears a hat. Her eyes narrowed. I'll bet he was afraid of security cameras, do you think? Possibly. Could you describe him, his face? Never paid any attention, really. Long face, kind of pale, like he didn't get out much. No beard or mustache, I think. Any idea where he was coming from or where he might be going? Charlotte tried, but nothing came to mind. Sorry. She was nearly cringing that she couldn't answer the question. A car? Again, a defeat. Well, I don't... Wait. No, probably not. He turns away from the parking lot when he leaves, I think. So you watched him go? You'd kind of want to look at him, you know? Not that he's a freak or anything, just so skinny. Eating all that and so skinny. Totally unfair. We have to work at it, right? The two women present, Sachs supposed she meant. A smile. Every time he went that way, every time he left? I guess, pretty sure. Did he carry anything? Oh, a couple of times he had a bag, a plastic bag. I think once, yeah. He put it on the counter and it was heavy, kind of clanked like metal. What color bag? White. No idea what was inside? No, sorry. I really wish I could help. You're doing great. Clothes? She shook her head. Other than the jacket and hat, I don't remember, no. Sachs asked Rodriguez. Security video? Guessing the answer. It loops every day. Yep, like she'd thought. 
It would have already overwritten any footage of their perp. Turning back to Charlotte, you've been a big help. Sachs directed the next comment to both of them. I need you to tell everybody who works here that we're looking for this man. If he comes back, call 911 and add that he's suspect in a homicide. Homicide, Charlotte whispered, looking both horrified and delighted. That's right, I'm Detective 5885, Sachs. She handed cards to the manager and to Charlotte. The woman gazed at it, as if the tiny bit of cardboard were a huge tip. She wore a wedding band, and Sachs supposed she was already relishing the dinner table conversation tonight. Sachs looked from one to the other. But don't call me. Call 911 and mention my name. There'll be a squad car here faster than I could get here. You're going to have to act like nothing's going on. Just serve him like normal. Then when he leaves or sits down, call us. Okay? Don't do anything other than that. I can rely on you. Oh, you bet, detective, Charlotte said, a private acknowledging a general's orders. I'll make sure of it, Rodriguez, the manager, said, that everybody knows. There are other white castles in the area. He might go there, too. Could you tell the managers the same thing? Sure. Sachs looked out of the window, free of grime, and surveyed the wide street. It was lined with shops, restaurants, and apartments. Any one of the stores could have sold things that clanked and stowed them in white plastic bags for customers to take home. Or to a murder site. Rodriguez offered, Hey, detective, take some sliders, on me. We can't take complimentary food. But donuts? Sachs smiled. That's a myth. She glanced at the grill. But I'll pay for one. Charlotte frowned. You better get two. They're pretty small. They were. But they were also damn good. And so was the milkshake. She finished her breakfast, lunch, in all of three minutes, and stepped outside. From her pocket, she extracted her cell phone, then called Ron Pulaski. There was no answer on the landline at the unsub-40 war room at 1 p.p. She tried his mobile, voicemail. She left a message. Okay, we canvas solo. Sachs started onto the sidewalk, swept by punchy wind from the overcast sky. Tall man, pale man, skinny man, white bag. He'd been shopping. Start with hardware stores, sawdust, varnish, ball-peen hammers, blunt force trauma. Chapter 9 Lincoln Rhyme had forgotten completely that Juliet Archer, his forensic student, was arriving today to begin her informal internship. She was the visitor who'd come a-calling. Under other circumstances, he might have enjoyed her company. But now his immediate thought was how to get rid of her. Archer directed her storm-arrow chair around the escalator and into the parlor, breaking smartly in front of the lattice of wires covering the floor. She apparently wasn't used to tooling over snaky cables, but then, probably concluding that Rhyme would have driven over them regularly without damage, she did the same. Hello, Lincoln. Juliet. Tom nodded to her. Juliet Archer, I'm a student in Lincoln's class. I'm his caregiver, Tom Reston. Pleased to meet you. A moment later came a second buzzer, and Tom went to answer the door. He and a burly man in his thirties entered the parlor. The second visitor was dressed in a business suit, pale blue shirt and tie. The top button of the shirt was undone and the tie pulled loose. Rhyme never understood that look. The man nodded a greeting to all, but directed his gaze at Archer. Jewel, you didn't wait. I asked you to wait. 
Archer said, This is my brother, Randy. Rhyme recalled she was staying with him and his wife because her loft downtown was being modified to make it more accessible. The couple also happened to live conveniently near John Marshall College. Randy said, It's a steep ramp out front. I've done steeper, she said. Rhyme knew the tendency of people to mother or baby those with severe disabilities. The practice drove him crazy, as it apparently did Archer as well. He wondered if she'd eventually grow immune to coddling. He never had. Well, he thought, the brother's presence settled the matter. No way were two people, amateurs no less, hanging out here while he and Mel Cooper struggled to make a case against the manufacturer or the mall or whoever had been responsible for the death of Sandy Fromer's husband. Present as promised, Archer said, eyes taking in the parlor cum lab. Well, look at this. The equipment, instruments, and a scanning electron microscope. I'm impressed. Power problems? Rhyme didn't answer. Any words might discourage their rapid exit. Mel Cooper swung from scaffolding to floor, looking toward Archer. She blinked as the beam of his flashlight stabbed her eyes. Oh, so sorry, Mel Cooper. A nod rather than an offered hand, considering the wheelchair situation. Archer introduced her brother, and then returning her attention to Cooper, said, Oh, Detective Cooper, Lincoln said some nice things about you. He holds you up as a shining example of a forensic lab. Okay, Rhyme said quickly, ignoring the inquiring but pleased glance from Cooper. We're in the midst of something here. She eased forward, looking over other equipment. When I was doing epidemiology, we used a GCMS sometimes. Different model, but still. Voice activated? Um, well, no. Mel or Amelia usually run it, but... Oh, there's a voice system that works well. RTJ Instrumentation, based in Akron. Is there? Just mentioning it. An article in Forensics Today about hands-free in the lab. I could send it to you. We subscribe, Cooper said. I'll look forward to... Rhyme muttered. As I was saying, this case we're working on, very time-sensitive, came up suddenly. Involving, let me guess, an escalator to nowhere. Rhyme was irritated at the humor. He said... Probably would have been best to call. Could have saved you both the trouble. Archer said evenly, Yes, well, we did agree for me to be here today. You never got back to me about the exact time. I emailed. The corollary was that if anyone was to have called, it should have been he. He tried a new tack. My error, entirely. I apologize for your wasted trip. Drawing a dry gaze from Tom at the rampant insincerity, Rhyme pointedly ignored him. So we'll have to reconvene, a different time, later. Randy said, So, Jewel, let's head back. I'll get the van, then guide you down the ramp, and... Oh, but everything's scheduled. Will Sr.'s got Billy for the next few days, and Button's got a playdate with Whiskers. I've changed all my doctor's appointments, so... Button? Whiskers? Rhyme thought. Jesus H. Christ, what have I gotten myself into? See, when I agreed you could come, there was a lull. I could be more instructive. Now I wouldn't be able to be very helpful. So much going on. This is really a very pressing matter. Pressing matter? I actually said that? Rhyme wondered. She nodded but was staring at the escalator. This would have to be that accident. In Brooklyn, right? The mall? A civil case. There didn't seem to be any thinking it was criminal. 
That means, I'd guess, lawsuits against a number of defendants. Manufacturer, real estate company, owning the mall, maintenance crews. We know what those are like. She wheeled about. Who doesn't love Boston Legal and the good wife? Who knows what the hell they are? I really think it's best, Archer said, and this is a mock-up. You couldn't have the actual escalator here? Off-limits to civil lawyers? Removed and impounded, Cooper said, drawing a glare from rhyme. Again, I apologize, but Archer continued. What's so pressing? Other plaintiffs clamoring for a piece of the pie? Rhyme said nothing. He simply watched her wheel closer to the scaffolding. Now his eyes took her in more closely. She was dressed quite stylishly. A long forest green houndstooth skirt, a starched white blouse, black jacket, an elaborate gold bracelet of what seemed to be runic characters was on her left wrist, the one that was strapped immobile to the arm of her wheelchair. She maneuvered the storm arrow with a touchpad using her right hand. The chestnut hair was up in a bun today. Archer had apparently already begun to learn that when your extremities are out of commission, you do all you can to minimize tickles and irritations from hair and sweat. Rhyme presently used far more mosquito-repellent, organic at Tom's insistence, than he had before his accident. Jewel, Randy said, Mr. Rhyme is busy. Don't overstay your welcome. Already have, he thought. But his smile was smeared with regret. Sorry, it really would be best for everybody concerned. Next week, two weeks. Archer herself was staring at Rhyme, eyes unwavering. He stared right back as she said, Don't you think another body would be helpful? Sure, I'm a newbie at forensics, but I've done epidemiologic investigation for years. Besides, without any real evidence, doesn't look like fingerprints and density gradient analysis will be called for. You'll be doing a lot of speculative work on issues of mechanical failure. We did that all the time in sourcing infections. Speculation, not mechanics, of course. I could do some of the legwork. A smile, so to speak. Jewel, Randy said, blushing. We talked about that. Referring Rhyme guest to a prior conversation on joking about her disability. Rhyme himself delighted in baiting the condescenders, the overly sensitive and the politically correct, even, especially, within the disabled community. Gimp was a favorite noun of his. Cringe, a verb. When Rhyme didn't respond to Archer's persistence, her lips tightened. But, she said breezily, if you're not interested, that's fine. We can take a rain check. There was an edge to her voice, and this solidified his decision. He hardly needed attitude. He was doing her a favor taking her on as an intern. It is best, I'm afraid. Randy said, I'll get the car, bring it around. Really, Jewel, and wait at the top of the ramp, turning to Rhyme. Thanks, he said, nodding effusively. Appreciate all you're doing for her. Don't mention it. I'll see you out, Tom said. Mel, get back to work, Rhyme grumbled. The tech climbed into the scaffolding once more. The camera flashes resumed. Archer said, see you in class next week, Lincoln. You can come back, of course, intern here. Just a different time. Sure she said flatly, and wheeled into the hallway with Tom. A moment later, Rhyme heard the door close. He wheeled to the video screen and watched Archer, in defiance of her brother, tool easily down the ramp and park on the sidewalk. She looked back and up at the townhouse. Rhyme wheeled back to the computer monitor, on which were displayed the pictures Amelia Sachs had taken. 
He studied them for a few minutes, then exhaled a long sigh. Tom, Tom, I'm calling you. Where the hell are you? About eight feet away, Lincoln, and no, I haven't gone deaf recently. What are you so politely requesting? Get her back in here. Who? That woman who was just here, ten seconds ago. Who else would I be talking about? I want her back, now. Ron Pulaski was on a sidewalk that was cracked into trapezoids and triangles of concrete, rising like bergs in an ice flow. The chain link he stood beside was topped with razor wire and was graffitied, defaced with letters and symbols more cryptic than usual because the tagger's canvas was mesh. Who would deface chain link, he wondered. Maybe all the good brick walls and concrete abutments were taken. Listening to his voicemail. Amelia Sachs wanted him. He'd snuck away from their war room in one PP, believing that she'd follow up on the White Castle lead and return to Manhattan in a few hours. But apparently she'd found something to move the case forward. He listened to the message again, decided she didn't need him immediately. Not like there was an emergency. She wanted him to aid in a canvas of an area where Unsub 40 had been spotted a few days ago, and to which he returned from time to time. Maybe he lived there, maybe shopped. Pulaski didn't want to talk to her. He texted. Lying was easier when your thumbs, not your voice, communicated. He'd get there as soon as he could, he said. He was out of the office briefly. Nothing more than that. His message, though, when he thought about it, wasn't exactly lying. He wasn't in the office, and as soon as his business was completed, he'd join her for the canvas. Still, when he was on the street patrolling, his approach was failure to disclose his deception, too. Phone duty finished, the young officer was back to being vigilant. Extremely so. He was in the 33, after all, and so he had to be. Pulaski had just hit the sidewalk from the transit complex of Broadway Junction and was walking along Vincendron Avenue. This part of Brooklyn was a mess. Not particularly filthy, no more so than other parts of the city. Just chaotic. Canarsie and Jamaica trains rattling overhead, the IND underground, autos and trucks aplenty, edging past, honking, cutting in and out, hordes of people on the sidewalks, bicycles. The officer stood out. His race was represented by about 2% of the residents here, where Ocean Hill, Brownsville, and Bed-Stuy merged. Nobody hassled him. Nobody seemed even to notice him, everyone being on their own missions, which in New York City always seemed urgent. Or they were focused on their mobiles or conversations with their friends. As in most hoods, the majority, vast majority of locals just wanted to get to and from work, hang with people they knew in bars or coffee houses or restaurants, go shopping, take walks with the kids and dogs, get home. But that didn't mean he could ignore those here who might take more than a casual interest and wonder why this scrubbed white boy with a suburban haircut and a baby smooth face was sauntering down the broken pavement in a hard, black and brown part of town. The 33, as in the last digits of its zip code, was statistically the most dangerous part of New York City. After Amelia Sachs had left 1PP, Pulaski had given it a few minutes, and then lost his NYPD uniform and dressed down. Jeans, running shoes, combat green t-shirt, and a black leather jacket, shabby. Head down, he'd left headquarters. He'd hit a nearby ATM, cringing mentally as he saw the bills flip. Am I really doing this? He thought. 
over the river and through the woods. To bad guys we will go. Leaving behind the transit hub now, he walked to Broadway, past the car repair garages, building supply outfits, real estate offices, check cashing and salary advance storefronts, bodegas, cheap diners with fly-blown handwritten menus on cards and windows. As he moved farther away from the commercial streets, he passed apartment blocks, mostly three or four story. Lots of red brick, lots of painted stone and beige and brown, lots of graffiti. On the horizon were the towering projects of Brownsville, not far away. On the sidewalk were cigarette butts, trash, malt liquor cans, and a few condoms and needles. And even crack tubes, which seemed almost nostalgic. You didn't see that scourge much anymore. The 33. Pulaski was walking fast. One block, two blocks, three blocks, four. Where the hell is Alpho? Ahead on the same sidewalk, two kids, yeah, young but together, weighing four Pulaskis, eyed him hostily. He had his Smith & Wesson bodyguard on his ankle, his private weapon. But if they wanted to perp him, they'd perp him, and he'd be on the ground and bleeding before he could snag the punchy gun from its holster. But they turned back to their joints and grave conversation, letting him pass without another look. Two more blocks, and finally he spotted the young man he'd been searching for. Back at 1PP, he'd taken a furtive look at a precinct activity report from the 73 and had a rough idea of where to go, where Alpho might be hanging. The kid was on his mobile and smoking, a cigarette, not weed, in front of GW Deli and phone card store. GW? George Washington? Then Pulaski thought for some reason. Gee whiz? The skinny Latino was in a wife-beater T-shirt, exposing arms that didn't see a lot of push-ups. Street crime surveillance had gotten some solid pics of him, which was why Pulaski recognized him immediately. Alpha had been brought in, questioned, and released a few times. But he'd never been busted, and was still, narcotics believed, in business. Had to be true. You could tell, from the posture, from the wariness, even while concentrating on the phone call. Pulaski looked around. No obvious threats. So get this over with. Pulaski strode toward Alpho, glanced his way, and slowed. The young man, a grayish tint to his dark skin, lifted his head, said something into the mobile by way of farewell, and slipped the cheap flip phone away. Pulaski eased closer. Hey. Yo. Alpho's eyes scanned up and down the street like skittish animals. Didn't spot anything worrisome. Then back to Pulaski. Nice day, huh? Sorry, right, guess. I know you? Pulaski said. Alphonse, right? A stare in response. I'm Ron. So who? Ket. At Richie's in Bed-Stuy. He cool. How you know him? Pulaski said. Just know him. Hang with him some. He'll vouch. Eddie Ket would vouch for Ron Pulaski. Not because they were buddies, but because a few days ago, while breaking up a fight off-duty, Pulaski had found out that Eddie had been carrying a pistol when he shouldn't have been, which was never. He also had some pills on him. The meds had interested Pulaski, who'd suggested he could forget about the weapon and oxy charges in return for a favor, provided Ket never said a word about it. Ket had wisely chosen that route, and had pointed him in Alphonse's direction, and was happy to play character reference. Looking up and down the street, both men now. Cat, he okay? 
repeating, stalling. Alphonse was his name, but on the street it was mostly Alfo, or to cops and gangbangers, Alpo, after the dog food. Yeah, he's okay. I'ma call him. Why I mentioned him, why I came to you, he said you could hook me up. Why not him? Help you, I mean. Alpha wasn't calling Eddie Kitt, Pulaski noticed. Probably believes me. You'd have to be an idiot to come to the 33 without somebody vouching. Eddie doesn't have what I need. I'ma say, brother, you ain't looking strung out. What you want? No brown, no C, nothing like that. Pulaski shook his head, looking around again for threats from anyone, male or female. Girls were dangerous, too. Pulaski scanned for uniforms and plain clothes and unmarked dodges. He sure didn't want to run into any compatriots. But the streets were clear. He said in a low voice, There's some new shit I heard about. It's not Oxy, but it's like Oxy. I ain't heard about that, brother. I hook you up with weed, with C, with speed, meth balls. Alpha was relaxing. This wasn't the way undercover bus worked. Pulaski pointed to his forehead. I got this thing happened to me. Crap beat out of me a couple years ago. I started getting these headaches again. They came back. I mean, big time. They're crap totally. You get headaches? Ciroc? Smyrny? Alpha smiled. Pulaski didn't. He whispered. These are so bad, I can't do my job right, can't concentrate. What you do? Construction, crew in the city, ironwork. Man, those skyscrapers? How you do that? Climb up there? Damn. Almost fell a couple times. Shit. Oxy mess you up too? No, no, this new stuff's different. Just takes the pain away, doesn't mess with your mind. Doesn't make you woozy, you know? Woozy? Alpha had no clue. Why you ain't get a prescription? This stuff they don't write paper for. It's new, underground labs. Heard you could get it here in BK, East New York mostly. Guy named Odin, something. He makes it himself or runs it in from Canada or Mexico. You know him? Odin? Nah. Ain't hear of him. What's this new shit called? I heard a name. Catch. It's called Catch? What I'm saying. Alpha seemed to like the name. Like it grabs you, you know? Catches you, it's so strong. Damn, I don't know. Anyway, I want some. Bad, man, I need it. Gotta get these headaches under control. Well, I ain't got none. Never heard of it. But hook you up a dozen. Regular, I mean. One bill. Little lower than the general street price. Oxy went for about ten bucks per. Alpha was grooming for future sales. Yeah, okay. The exchange happened fast, as they always should. The plastic bag of OxyContin swapped for a handful of twenties. Then the dealer blinked as he looked at the wad Pulaski had slipped him. Brother, I telling you, one bill. That five right there. Tip. Tip? Like a tip at a restaurant. Confused. Pulaski smiled. Keep it, man. I'm just asking, can you check around, see if you can find this new shit for me? Or at least who this Odin guy is, where I can get some catch from him? Dunno, brother. A nod at Alpha's pocket. Bigger tip next time. You point me the right way. I mean bigger. M and a half. Maybe more. It's righteous information. Then the skinny man gripped Pulaski's forearm, leaned close, radiating the smell of tobacco, sweat, garlic, coffee. You ain't no damn cop? Looking him back in the eyes, Pulaski said, No, I'm a guy gets headaches so bad I can't get it up sometimes, and who lies in the bathroom and pukes for hours. That's what I am. Talk to Eddie, he'll tell you. 
Alpha looked once more at the scar on Pulaski's forehead. I'ma call you, brother. Digits? Pulaski punched in Alpha's number, and the gangbanger reciprocated. Burner phoned to Burner, the age of trust. Then Pulaski turned and head down walked back in the direction of the Broadway Junction Transit Complex. Thinking it was pretty funny that he could very well have said to Alphonse Gravita that, yeah, I am a cop, but it doesn't matter because this isn't an undercover operation at all. Not a soul in the NYPD or in the world knows about it. That wasn't buy money I just handed over, but my own, which Jenny and I can't afford to give away. But sometimes, when you're desperate, you do desperate things. Chapter 10 Not good. Not good at all. She's ruined it. Red, the cop, the shopper. She's taken it away from me. My wonderful white castle. Stolen it. And she's walking here and there in Astoria, looking for clues to me. A little luck here, just like in the mall, when she was right next to the deadly escalator. Here I was fortunate, too, spotting her first, a half block away from White Castle. Red, walking inside like a hunter. My White Castle! Two minutes later, if I hadn't seen her, and I'd have pushed in, hungry, mouth-watering, tasting burger and shake, then eye to eye with Red. She could draw her gun faster than I could get my bone cracker out of my backpack or my razor saw. Luck saved me again. Did her luck get her here? No, no, no. I was careless. That's it. I am furious. Remembering. Yes, I threw away trash when the shoppers came after me in the mall. I dumped the Starbucks litter nowhere near Starbucks, but somehow they must have found it. And that means they found the other things I'd thrown out, too. In the trash bin of that Mexican place behind the mall. I thought the help would grow blind and mute or get shipped back to Juarez. It didn't occur to me that Red would stoop to garbage. She'd have nabbed a White Castle napkin or receipt. Fingerprints? I'm pretty careful. When I'm in public, I try to use far ends of fingers. The top quarter of tips are pretty useless for prints. Oh, I know my stuff. Where I dunk napkins in soda or coffee, turn them to mush. But I didn't think that time. Speaking of hands... My palms are nice and sweaty now, fingers. My long, long fingers, shaking a little. I'm mad at myself, but mad at her mostly. Red, taking my white castle away, making me finish up too fast with Alicia. Now watching her at some distance, I see her move sveltely down the street, into and out of stores. I know what she's done. Ask the server at White Castle, or all the servers and customers, too. Hey, did you see the Bean Boy? The Praying Mantis? Long John, Slim Jim? Oh, sure we did. Funny, funny looking. Hard to miss. Now the good news is that she won't find my favorite store where I often go before or after my burgers. Not on this street, not nearby. It's a subway stop away. Still, there are other connections she might make. Have to take care of this. Everything good in my mind's now knocked aside. The visit to my brother later today. Fun, fun, fun with Alicia tonight. The next death on my schedule. Plans have changed. So has your luck, Red. Get yourself ready. The joke sours. I'm so angry. 
When she steps into a bodega to ask some questions about the bean boy, I step out onto the sidewalk, moving wide around the White Castle where they know about me now. My wonderful White Castle, where I can never go again. I hike my backpack higher on my shoulder and move fast. You were right, Rhyme was saying. Your deductions. Though he reflected, he hardly needed to tell her this. Juliet Archer, he'd decided, was somebody who wouldn't draw conclusions unless she had a good, no, extremely good, basis for knowing they were accurate. She wheeled closer. Rhyme continued. Though the reason we have to sue right away isn't other plaintiffs, or only that. It's that the victim's widow and her son are in a bad way. He explained about the lack of insurance, their debt, about the garage in upstate New York, their soon-to-be, perhaps long-term, home. Archer offered no opinion about Schenectady, but the stillness in her face suggested she appreciated the hardship that loomed. He described the additional issue of Fromer's complicated employment history. The attorney's building the case to prove that this was a temporary slump, but that might be hard to do. Archer's eyes shone. But if you can prove the defendant did something particularly egregious or careless, there may be punitive damages. Maybe, as Whitmore suggested of Rhyme himself, Archer should have gone to law school as well. Boston legal. To threaten them with punitive damages, Rhyme reminded. We want to settle, and settle quickly. Archer asked, when can we have access to the real deal and all the evidence? Could be months. But can we make a case for liability from just the mock-up? Rhyme said, we'll see. He explained what Whitmore had told him about strict products liability and negligence, the possibility of an intervening cause that would shift liability away from the manufacturer. Our job first is to pinpoint the defect and find a very careless and a very rich defendant, she said wryly. That's the strategy. Tom! The aide appeared. Rhyme said to Archer, why don't you explain your medical situation to him? She did. Unlike Rhyme, she had not suffered a trauma to her spine. Doctors had discovered a tumor that wound around the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae. Rhyme's injury had been at the fourth. Archer explained about the series of treatments and surgery that would ultimately render her as disabled as Rhyme, if not more so. Her life at the moment was consumed with adapting to the condition by changing careers to one more suitable to a quadriplegic and learning from an experienced patient, Lincoln Rhyme, what to expect and how to cope. Tom said, I'm happy to play the role of your caregiver too, if you like, while you're here. Would you? Delighted to, he said. She wheeled about and faced Rhyme. Now what can I do? Research escalator accidents, particularly this model. Whitmore said that might be admissible. And get the maintenance manuals. A contractor leased us a part of the escalator, but they haven't delivered the documents yet. I want to know everything about it. Let's see if the company or the city is ordering inspections of similar models. Yes, good. He hadn't thought of this. Computer I can use? Brime pointed out a desktop nearby. He knew she could use her right hand on the controller, but keyboarding was not a possibility. Could you set Juliet up with a headset and microphone for Computer 3? Sure. Over here. Her self-confidence suddenly dimmed, and for the first time since he'd met her, Archer seemed uneasy, presumably for having to rely on someone else's help other than her brother's. 
She was looking at the computer as if it were a stray dog whose tail was not wagging. Arguing with Rhyme about starting her internship had been different. They were equals. Here she was having to rely on an able-bodied person. Thank you. I'm sorry. This is the least of my trials and tribulations. Tom fitted her with a headset and a touchpad for her right hand. Then he booted up the computer. You can print out anything you find, but we don't do that much. Easier for everybody to use the monitors. Rhyme used a page-turning frame, but that was mostly for books, magazines, or documents that arrived already in hard copy form. Those are some of the biggest screens I've ever seen. Archer's good cheer had returned in part. She murmured something into the headset, and Rhyme saw the screen change as a search engine popped up. I'll get to work. First, everything I can find about the escalator itself. Mel Cooper called. Do you want the model and serial number? Model is MCE-77, Archer said absently, staring at the screen. I've got the serial, too. Memorized them from the manufacturer's info plate when I came in just now. And she slowly recited the lengthy numbers into the microphone. The computer responded dutifully to her low, melodic voice. Chapter 11 Still playing infrastructure paparazzo with his digital camera, Mel Cooper continued to prowl about within the scaffolding and shrouding the escalator. How did they get it in? He called. This thing is huge. Removed the roof, cut holes in all the floors, lowered it in by helicopter. Or maybe it was angels or superheroes. I forget. Legitimate question, Lincoln. Irrelevant question, therefore illegitimate. What are you seeing? Give me a minute. Rhyme sighed. Speed. They needed to move fast, to help Sandy Fromer, of course, but also as Archer had thought and Whitmore had confirmed, to get a settlement before spurious plaintiffs appeared, hoping for a windfall. He had explained, The other passengers on the escalator who leapt off, the injuries were minor or non-existent, but that doesn't mean they won't sue. And then, the lawyer had added, there'll be those who claim emotional distress because they simply saw a gruesome accident and their lives will be changed forever. They'll never get on an escalator again. Nightmares, eating disorders, loss of income from taking workdays off. Yes, it's true. Nonsense, but true. This is the world of personal injury law. Archer now called from the computer station she was parked in front of. The city suspended the operation of all MCE-77 models pending inspection. Reading from the Times, there are 56 installed in New York City, nearly a thousand elsewhere. No other reports of malfunctions. Interesting. Rhyme wondered if an inspection might find something beneficial to their case. He wondered how fast it would be concluded. Finally, Cooper joined Rhyme and slipped the SD memory card out of the Sony camera. He loaded it into a computer slot and called up the pictures on a high-def monitor. The screen was big enough that dozens of images fit side by side. Rhyme moved closer. Here are the parts that seem relevant. The tech stepped to the screen and pointed. The panel that popped up. It serves as both a step, the top immobile step, and an access panel for maintenance and repairs. Hinged on the far side, away from the escalator stairs. I'd guess the weight about 40 or so pounds. Archer called. 42. She'd found specifications, she explained, in a Midwest conveyance installation and maintenance manual. Cooper continued. And it's assisted by a spring, so when the catch is released, the door pops up about 16 inches. 
consistent with Sack's observation and photos. A worker can lift it all the way from there and use a rod to keep it open, like the sort used to support car hoods. Pointing, Cooper indicated images he'd taken. To close the door, workers lower it by pushing it down, or I'd guess standing on it until a triangular bracket on the bottom of the door meets a spring-fed pin on a fixed bar. Here. The bracket pushes the pin in until the panel's all the way down and the pin snaps into a hole to lock it closed. How's it released? Rhyme asked. Push-button switch in a receptacle behind a locked cover on the side of the escalator. Here. Circuit runs to the servo motor here. It retracts the pin, releasing the access panel. So, Rhyme mused. What could have caused it to pop? Ideas? Come on, think. Archer. The latching bracket broke off. But an examination of Sax's pictures seemed to show that it was still attached to the bottom of the access panel. Maybe the pin snapped, Rhyme said. The de Havilland Comet, 1950s. Both Archer and Cooper looked his way. He explained. First commercial jetliner. Three of them exploded in midair because of metal fatigue. A window failed at high altitude. Fatigue is one of the main mechanical failure modes. Other modes are buckling, corrosion, fouling, fracture, impact, stress, thermal shock, a few more. Fatigue occurs when a material, could be metal or anything else, is subject to cyclical loading. The jetliner, Archer offered. Pressurization over and over. That's what happened, right. In that case, there were square windows and doors. The stress was concentrated in the corners. The redesigned planes had round ports and windows. Less stress and fatigue. So the question here is, did the opening and closing of the access panel on the escalator lead to fatigue on the part of the latching pin? Cooper highlighted the latch. No signs of wear on this one, but it's new. I wonder how old the original was, how many times the door had been opened and closed. Rhyme felt once more the frustration at not having the actual evidence before him. He heard a sound of a jostled table as Juliet Archer maneuvered closer to him clumsily manipulating the chair's controller with her right finger. Handling a 200-pound wheelchair deftly took considerable practice. New to the game. The one that failed in the mall was six years old, she said. How did you find that out? Press releases from Midwest Conveyance announcing they'd been awarded the contract for the escalators at the mall seven years ago. Construction occurred the next year. According to maintenance recommendations, the unit should be inspected and lubricated five times a year allowing for breakdowns and unplanned repairs, I'd say the door was opened and closed 50 times. Rhyme looked at Cooper's picture of the pin holding the triangular bracket that kept the panel shut. It was only about an inch long, but thick. It seemed unlikely that the pin would fatigue with that limited number of openings. Archer added, and one of the maintenance steps is to examine the pin for excessive wear, presumably for fatigue too. What's it made of, steel? Archer said. That's right, all the parts are steel, except for a few housings that had nothing to do with the accidents, and the exterior pieces. They're aluminum and carbon fiber. She certainly had attacked the manual and specification sheet quickly. Rhyme said, even if it was in good shape, the latch might have come loose and the pin might not have fully reseated itself. Vibrations could have worked it loose. Maybe. A lot of speculation in this case. Who made the locking mechanism? Without looking at the documents she'd loaded onto her screen, she said, The manufacturer, Midwest Conveyance, wasn't a separate company. Rhyme said, Possible metal fatigue and maintenance issues. 
What else might have caused it to open? Could somebody, Archer asked, have hit the switch accidentally or as a prank? Cooper called up some pictures. Here's the switch. It's on the outside of the unit on the bottom near the emergency cutoff, he pointed. But it's behind the small locked door. Rhyme said, Amelia checked on that. She looked over the CCTV at the mall. She said nobody was near the access switch when the panel opened. Archer's face screwed up with an ironic frown. And that video? The Department of Investigations impounded it. She cocked her head as her eyes slipped to Cooper. We're civilians, but you're NYPD, right? I'm not here, he said quickly. You're- I'm unofficial, on vacation. If I were to get official investigative material now, I'd be sent on permanent vacation. Scanning the photographs. What else could be the culprit? Rhyme mused. Okay, no one pushed the button intentionally. Maybe a short circuit or other electrical problem activated the switch. It tripped the motor, it's called a servo, and that retracted the pin and popped the door. Let's look at the wiring. Mel expanded the pictures he'd taken inside the escalator. Rhyme noted that a wire ran along the interior wall from the push-button switch on the outside. The switch wire ended in a plug inserted in one of the outlets on the side of the servo unit inside. The connections are exposed, Cooper said. They are indeed, Rhyme said. He gave a brief smile. An instant later, Archer, too, grinned. I get it. A bit of metal or foil or something conductive might have drifted onto the plug and completed the connection. The servo pulled the pin back and the door popped up, she added. I couldn't find any similar incidents involving this model escalator. Escalators can be dangerous, but usually it's getting clothes or shoes caught in the mechanism. That happens more than you'd think. 137 people died last year in escalator accidents around the world. The worst single disaster some years ago was an explosion in the London Underground. Dust and particles accumulated and then caught fire and blew up, like a grain elevator explosion. Have you ever seen those? They don't happen in New York very often, Rhyme said absently, mulling over what she'd told him. I have, offered Mel Cooper. Seen one. Rhyme grimaced at the irrelevance. And the defect is that Midwest Conveyance didn't shield the plugs, Archer said. Would have been easy. Recess them. Put them under a covering. Something like that. Cooper offered. Or they shouldn't use plugs at all. Hardwire the switch and the servo motor. Maybe the manufacturer wanted to save money. The first hint, there might have been punitive-level behavior on the part of the manufacturer. Who makes... Archer answered his question before he finished it. Just like the locking mechanism, both the servo motor and the switch were made by Midwest Conveyance. They're component parts unit, and a division, not a subsidiary. They can't hide behind the corporate veil. Cooper said, I thought you were an epidemiologist. Boston Legal... Believe me, it's really very good. I also like Better Call Saul. Cooper said, L.A. Law, too. Oh, it's good. Please. Rhyme was puzzling out how foreign substances could have tricked the servo motor into opening the door. I have an idea, Archer said. What's that? You're a scientist. You like empirical evidence. The highest deity in my pantheon, Rhyme said, not much caring how pretentious it sounded. She nodded toward the escalator. Does it work? The drive motor, gears, servo motor, and switch do, and it's plugged in. So let's experiment. Turn it on and try to get the panel to open. Rhyme had a thought. He turned toward the kitchen and shouted, Tom, 
Tom, I need a drink. The aide appeared in the doorway. A little too early, as I recently pointed out. Too early for a Coke? You never drink soda. There isn't any in the house. But if I recall, there's a deli right around the corner. The hardware stores, there were two of them within hoofing distance of the White Castle, had been a bust. No one recalled seeing a customer fitting the description of unsub-40, and neither of them sold ball-peen hammers. So for the past hour, Amelia Sachs had pounded the sidewalk, canvassing the other shops along the wind-blown, littered sidewalks of this workaday hood. The body shops, auto parts stores, phone card outlets, car services, wig stores, taquerias, dozens of other places. One clerk in a drugstore was pretty sure he'd seen on the street a man matching the description of unsub-40, but couldn't remember exactly where he'd been, what he'd been wearing, if he'd been carrying anything. The sighting possibly confirmed White Castle Charlotte's belief that he'd come in this direction. But as to a destination, that was still a mystery. And of course, there were bus stops and subway stations he might have walked to, or garages where he might park his car, even if he hadn't used the hamburger joints lot. She also checked for CCTVs in the commercial outlets, but none of the lenses were focused on the sidewalk, just on the doors, parking lots, and interiors. Besides, there were scores of cameras, and even if the unsub had stepped inside a surveilled store or taken a shortcut through a parking lot, she didn't have the manpower or time to go through hundreds of hours of video. Todd Williams's killing was a terrible crime, but it wasn't the only terrible crime within the five boroughs of New York City. And in this business, you always had to balance. And the balance rule applied to your personal life, too. Mobile phone out. She made a call. Amy. Mom? How you feeling? Good, Rose Sachs said, which, from Rose Sachs, might mean good, or might mean bad, or might mean any stop in between. The woman didn't let a lot out. Be there soon, Sachs told her. I can get a cab, Sachs chuckled. Mom, all right, dear, I'll be ready. Looping back, she canvassed stores and shops on the opposite side of the boulevard. And finally, had a solid hit at a gypsy cab company. She gave the hirsute lanky manager a description of their unsub, and the man immediately frowned and said in a thick Middle Eastern accent, Yes, I think so. Very skinny man. Had big bag of White Castle hamburgers. Big bag. For skinny man, funny. You remember when? He couldn't exactly, but agreed it might have been two weeks ago, possibly the day Todd Williams was murdered. Nor could he recall who the driver was, and the service kept no records of destinations, but he said he'd query his employees and find out more. She lowered her eyes to him. This is important. The man is a killer. I will start now. Yes, I will do that. She believed him, mostly because of his uneasy eyes when he had glanced at her proffered shield, which told her that not all his licenses were in seamless order, and he would be certain to cooperate in exchange for her tacit agreement not to send the Taxi and Limousine Commission to visit. Turning south, she began walking back toward her car, parked at the White Castle lot. A few stops at locations that seemed like unlikely ones for leads. A wig shop, a nail salon, a windowless computer repair operation. Then onto the sidewalk again. Suddenly, Sachs noted something from the corner of her eye. Movement. 
Not unusual here, though on this blustery day the sidewalks were largely deserted. But it had been a special sort of movement. Fast, deflecting, as if somebody didn't want to be seen. She unbuttoned her jacket, and right hand lounging near her Glock was looking around. This was an auto repair operation with a number of vehicles, from motorcycles to box trucks, all parked helter-skelter, many of them dismantled to varying degrees. The person who'd moved in close by, if a person it was and not a shadow or a swirl,